the story of a boy who dreamed of becoming a man, but dreamed up a monster instead. It has hunted you since the summer of 1994, back when we confessed who we were through mixtapes, when every movie at the video store had dirty heads. You were 13 and thought you knew who you were, only the shadow with too many teeth knew you better. It still does, and it won't stop, not until you come home, back to where it all began. Part cosmic horror, part coming of age story, Dirty Heads is a terrifying read from the author of House of Size, The Fallen Boys, and A Place for Sinners. Out now. Starting Saturday, 11th of September, Season 2 of Author Question Time on Ross Jeffrey's YouTube channel. Join Bram Stoker Award-nominated author Ross Jeffrey alongside co-hosts T.C. Parker and Kev Harrison as they discuss books, writing, and creativity with huge names in horror and dark fiction, like Josh Malaman and Alan Baxter, alongside some of the most exciting new voices on the indie scene, such as Eric LaRocca, Hayley Piper, and Laurel Hightower. Come, bring your questions, join in the conversation. In Twisted Tainted Tales, Splatterpunk Award-nominated author Janine Pipe delivers urban legends, supernatural stories and a few surprises. Mixing flash fiction and short tales, you can be sure this book is twisted and perfect for Halloween. Featuring a forward by Glenn Rolfe and clubs from Brian Keane, Hunter Shea and Tim Meyer. Available on Amazon. Thank you. Looking for your next horror writing podcast fix? The This Is Horror podcast for readers, writers and creators is the ultimate show for writing advice, tips and a personal look into the lives of all your favorite authors. This is Horror Podcast. Listen in to long-form conversations with some of the best writers and creatives on the planet. Over 400 episodes with masters of horror such as Joe R. Lansdale, Chuck Palahniuk, Josh Mallerman, Joe Hill, Charlene Harris, Craig Clevenger, Ellen Datlow, Kathy Koja, and many more. The This Is Horror Podcast. Listen in at www.thisishorror.com. That's the This Is Horror podcast for readers, writers, and creators. Welcome to Dead Headspace, part of Silver Shamrock's Horrorcast, a podcast network that includes Killing Time with Silver Shamrock and Unbearing the Dead, where we exhume classic horror paperbacks for the new generation. I'm your host, Patrick R. McDonough, joined always by my co-host, Brennan LaFaro. Say hi, Brennan. Hello, everybody. And returning guest host, Ken McKinley. Say hi, Ken. Hi there. And today we are talking with screenwriter, musician, author of Don't Push the Button, and a Splatterpunk founder, John Skip. Say hi, John. Hi, John. Wait. Hi, everybody. <laughs> and we're, man, we're really excited to have you and honored to have you on as the uh, 
season two finale. Uh, we started this season with Brian Keene. And honestly, you are very few. There's only like two other people that would make sense to have as the other bookend for this season. So thank you, sir, for that. Absolutely. We make, we make very snazzy bookends. Yeah, um, I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, and I just want to mention, we have a giveaway for this. Um, it'll be on our Twitter. But one thing is uh, don't push a button. It's a signed copy. Um, yeah, they wrap it up real nice. Uh, it is very up. nicely wrapped. This is what it looks like when it doesn't have the wrapping on it. Yeah. So it's like before, after. <laughs> I'll throw in my ugly mug, a little sticker. Oh. We got a clash bookmark to go, there you go. The book. and also another uh fella from the 80s ronald kelly he is actually hooking readers up with a signed copy of season's creepings two christmas <laughs> ornaments very nice and uh throwing one of my books if the winner is interested um so john let's get into it yeah. what, got you, what got you into horror any any angle you want to take on it go ahead and then kenner brennan jump in please well, you know, honestly, um, I recently did an interview um, for like hours uh, with these guys. Uh, what are they called? Uh, uh, Horror Makes Us Happy, something like that, where I talked about my childhood and my youth and my entire development. So let's just say um, um, I got fucked up early. I had uh, I, I had a fever. When I was two and a half, I was hallucinating rat things that come down the walls. If you ever read a book called uh, The Cleanup, uh, the main character, Billy Rowe, had a very similar thing. I got uh, Jacob's laddered in that my dad had to fill the bathtub with ice cubes and throw me in because my fever was uh-huh. burning me up. And um, uh, I grew up very afraid and then decided at also a very young age, uh, fuck that noise. I did not want to be scared my whole life. So I started uh, confronting my fears uh, and with horror movies and books and so forth, moved to Argentina, saw people die in front of me, realized that mortality was real, gained a healthy disrespect for authority, came back to the States. Uh, There's a story in uh, don't push the button um, called the inward eye that is like the most autobiographical piece of of fiction I think I've ever written, uh, aside from maybe the cleanup. If you put those two together through some sort of uh, uh, Brundle gene splicing affair, um, then you you might get very close to my entire gripping life history. But yeah, a bunch of shit happened and horror seemed like a very good, uh, how do I like to say this? Horror is the fiction of worst case scenarios. And if you um, if you want to address the damage, you go where the damage is. And that's why horror matters to me. So how's that helped you? Oh, it cheers me right up. <laughs> um, when, go ahead. Um, no, I'm, uh, you know, writing horror, a lot of it has been over the course of the many years, uh, super cathartic. You address the demon or you address the damage and you face it down and you work it out. Uh, you you undergo whatever psychic survivalist strategies uh, need to be deployed for the character to survive it or at least come through it with dignity, even in death. And in the process, 
you do the same thing for yourself. At least that's been sort of my uh, <clears throat> approach to it. And so, yeah, I mean, I'm a lot less scared than I used to be. I'm a lot more relaxed than I used to be. I got a lot fewer skeletons in my closet than I used to have. Um, and um, so, yeah, horror it has been a very... I think it's a really important color on the palette. If if all of art uh, is a full palette of the full range of colors and all of them bespeak certain aspects of the human condition, then what is horror? It's like blood red or pitch black or uh, uh, that really ugly green um, that happens when you mix too many of the wrong colors together. You know, it, 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 it's uh, it, it's the it's the visual shit end of the stick, but yeah, if you don't, if you don't deal with what, what's the Stephen King line, uh, Lennon and McCartney were right. All you need is love. As long as you keep the gators fed. I, I appreciate that great answer to a really short, vague question. I, you know, I heard your answer of, uh, what got you into horror as kind of the precursor, you know, this is why I tried to start writing it. So, uh, you know, my mind went to, you know, has that been successful? Now, I, I'm wondering, you know, you have sold over the course of your career books in the millions, millions yes. of books connected mm -hmm. with a lot of readers. Do you hear a lot of stories about people who have kind of dealt with their own life experiences and found uh, ways to find catharsis through reading your stuff? Yes, absolutely. Um, or they'll tell me the other things that they went through that um, that that brought them to where they are, the things that they've dealt with and what dealing with those things did to or for them. Um, and uh, so we could relate on those levels. I mean, uh, sometimes it's about the my work really helped. Sometimes it's about me meeting somebody and going, your work really helped. You know, I, I read something and it, it, it totally it totally hit me where I needed to be hit at the moment uh, I needed hitting. And, um, and yeah, it's a back, it's a conversation, you know, it's, it's not a monologue. Um, but, um, but you wouldn't know from the fact that I won't fucking shut up. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, yeah. It's always amazing when somebody uh, tells me how much, a thing that I wrote 30 years ago meant to them in junior high school when they stole it from a paperback rack um, or, you know, got into tension for reading it or trying to do a book report on it or just, you know, what, what's really interesting now being uh, just, you know, old as death uh, is that so many of the people who love my stuff uh, read it very young. And I'm like, Oh. <laughs> uh, now, uh, I mentioned in the intro, like I do in pretty much every intro, Unburying the Dead is another show. It's with me, Ken, and Brennan, and the guest host, and we talk about classic horror paperbacks. Um, Ken, <laughs> I want to aim this at you and kind of steer you in a question to John, but <clears throat> I know we've talked about it off air about Skip. Mm -hmm. I want to hear... Because you're you were of that era in the 80s where you were buying paperbacks wherever you were me and Brennan are very envious because me and Brennan are 90s kids. 
uh, Ken's a little bit older. So Ken, yes, yes, Ken. I'm the old, I'm the old bastard of the trio here. So, um, yeah, John, I grew up with you. Um, uh, my my first introduction to you was a uh, Book of the Dead. Cool, cool, cool. And I hit the ground running from that, and immediately after that, I was a Fangoria nut, <laughs> and and found out that you are the man responsible for Nightmare on Elm Street Five. I um I'm sorry. Uh uh uh. There's a lot of good stuff in there. I don't know how much of that was yours. I would have liked to have seen the the real deal because I've you know I've heard some of the stories through yeah. third, fourth, fifth person type thing that it was not your vision. Is that let correct? Me put, let me put it to you this way: um, Craig and I um, were approached by New Line to do this by Mike DeLuca who was one of the producers at New Line. He was a big fan of, of The Light at the End and a lot of the Splatterpunk stuff. So we wound up as part of a Splatterpunk casting call um, where we all got to pitch and we won. Craig and I won. So we had a couple of weeks to write the screenplay. We burned it down fast, but we had all these wild ideas. Um, we handed it in. Um, turns out that one of the other producers wanted a different writer. So even though this was not quite, quite legal, and I've talked about this on uh, Never Sleep Again, The Elm Street Legacy and various other places, I'll make it quick. Um, but um, they had another writer. She had another writer that she wanted to have. So he wrote a script. We wrote a script. Uh, they hated his and they loved ours. So they fired us, hired him to rewrite it. And six writers and 13 drafts later, they had the piece of shit movie that they finally released. And uh, we had to threaten them with legal action to get our names on it. And when we went through all that and then watched the movie and went, oh, fuck, are you kidding me? So, uh, yeah, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street 5 was uh, just about the worst professional experience of my creative life. But... Um, I got to meet Andrew Cash through it when they did the Never Sleep Again documentary, and we wound up directing a bunch of stuff together and being great friends. So the one good thing I will say out of it is that um, I got to meet Andrew, and uh, and the other thing is that every once in a while people will say, I really like that movie, and I'll go, <laughs> that makes one of you, and then I'll go, God, I'm such a dick. Uh, why can't I just let you like the movie you like? Well, that sucks that you had to learn early on about the how Hollywood chews you up and spits you out. Um, yeah. So let me ask you this. Was there is there anything that you can share that made it to the screen that was your vision? Oh, um, well. Andrew and I directed a segment of uh, the motion picture Tales of Halloween. Um, I don't know if you've seen that. It's been a a very popular favorite on the Netflix and now on the, um, on the Amazon. And um, yeah, it was us and Lucky McKee and uh, uh, Neil Marshall who did like, you know, the descent and mm -hmm. um, a bunch of other cool directors. And uh, Andrew and I did a short starring. Um, 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 oh my God. Hi, James Duvall and Dana Gould and Alyssa Dowling. And um, it's called This Means War. Uh, because we got to direct it, it was very much the story that we wanted to tell, although we had to do some fighting with the producers 
who made us soften it just a little bit. It would have been a it would have been a little meaner and gnarlier, but it turned out really swell, and I like it a lot. Um, I wrote a piece with my friend uh, Dory Miller for Creep Show called "Times Is Tough in Musky Holler" that mm. I think turned out pretty good. The zombie pie eating contest, um, and um, I have made several short films with um, with Andrew that I think turned out great. And I've just finished making a new short film uh, in the service of the new feature that I'm uh, getting ready to make called Doppelbanger. And uh, Doppelbanger is fucking nuts. And I'm super happy with the way that turned out. I'm kind of in the Prestasturgis school of, you know what? I think I can direct this better than you can. Um, so uh, I understand when I'm writing a script, I see every shot. Mm -hmm. I, I will actually get up and walk across the room and measure how many footsteps it takes for one character to get to the other one. So I know exactly how long that goes. I'm seeing everything very, very specifically. Uh, I wrote a book a couple of years ago that may never come out, but there's a scene where um, uh, a woman is bleeding to death. And I was trying to figure out exactly how much blood you could lose before you black out. And then how much more than that you could lose before you die. And then I went out in the street and poured out the amount of liquid that it would be just to see how long the pool actually stretched. Um, because I care about those things because I care. Um, and so, yeah, no, I fucking love making movies more than anything. Uh, and, um, yeah, with Doppelbanger, I wrote all the music as well. Oh, wow. uh, so I wrote I wrote 15 pieces of music for it, a bunch of songs, and then all the soundtrack atmosphere -y stuff. And uh, I wrote it on the same computer I'm talking with you uh, with right now, the MacBook Pro. I got a keyboard. I think you can see a bass yeah. uh, behind me. I got just a couple other implements. Um, oh, there's my microphone. Um, <laughs> and... Uh, yeah, it's just, I spent six months on a movie that we shot in 12 hours um, Whoa. and uh, just planning every shot and uh, hiring everybody and um, uh, working with the director of photography, uh, going to the location several times so that we mapped out every single shot in advance. So when we got there, we could move like lightning and shoot 14 pages of script in 12 hours, which is nuts with with two uh red cameras uh and a crew that was like psychic yeah they were like the borg man they just moved in unison um and a great cast uh a woman named kayla dixon who i think may be the only uh black female heavy metal singer uh in the biz uh, she's with the bands witch mountain and dress the dead and she is fucking astounding um <laughs> And uh, yeah, stuff like that. I, I like movies. So yeah, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street 5, The Dream Child, worst experience anywhere near a camera that I've ever had. Well, I'm glad it didn't spoil you so much that you just ran away from doing what you, obviously what you love and what you're talented for. Um, I, I can't wait to see what's on the horizon for uh, John Skip. I mean, sounds to me like John Carpenter needs to eat his heart out with Writing, produce, writing, producing, directing, and making the music for it. Sounds like we got another one here. Well, I'll tell you what. Um, 
John Carpenter is so cool. And the fact that he doesn't care if he never makes another movie again is fine because he, he put in his, yeah. he earned his stripes and, and then some, uh, it's so cool that he can just go out now, uh, you know, maybe a couple times a year, uh, once the, the plague lifts and, um, and just do rock shows full, mm-hmm. full of screaming people, uh, while he and his son and their awesome band, uh, play that stuff to that footage. That's just like the best, that's the best send off a guy, uh, in, uh, on the tail end could possibly get. That's like Roy Orbis and shit. Yeah. Um, it's just so sweet, but yeah, man, I just, uh, I may never write another book. Um, I'm really at the point right now where all I want to do, I've, I've published so many books mm-hmm. um, over the years. Anybody who wants to read me uh, has more than they'll probably even want uh, available to them. And I feel like uh, don't push the button uh, is sort of like a mission statement. Like it says everything that I feel like I really need to say right now uh, in, in word form. Uh, but my real joy is just to make movies. So I'm basically like every day I work to push that boulder a little more uphill and reach out to people and do all the, I I'm functioning as a producer right now. Okay. Uh, you know, uh, and just like, okay, I need to make meet this person to make this happen. And then this person to make this happen. And I need money from here and I need resources from here and I need, uh, um, uh, support from here and I need uh, these people to come have fun so that there's fun in the air. Um, yeah. I, I it, it, you know, movies, I get to tell stories, work with music, work with pictures, work with creative people, play well with others, um, uh, orchestrate teams. Uh, I use my uh, strategic thinking to organize this stuff. So it's like um, a military operation or my, my genius friend, Cody Goodfellow, who's also in, uh, in Doppelbanger as cowboy rusty and sings a swell song. Um, um, I did a music video that he appeared in a number of years ago and we were shooting in downtown Los Angeles uh, overlooking this beautiful old art deco bank from like the thirties and a huge homeless encampment right outside of that. And we're up on like the fifth uh, floor getting ready to shoot this insane music video. And uh, he's watching the team and me getting everybody together to do all this stuff. And he's like, you know, um, making a movie is like a bank job, isn't it? It's like you, you hire these, this crack crew. There's the guy who can, open the safe. This is the guy who's the great driver. This is the muscle. This is this, this is that. And if anybody fucks up, you all go to movie jail. And I'm like, dude, you, that's, that's it. Uh, so I, I, I like masterminding this shit and uh, keeping us all out of movie jail. And I like doing a movie where in the end, everybody walks out of it going, that was so much fun. And then they see it and they go, that's really cool. If I can do that every time, the fuck else do i want <laughs> so i want to focus on doppelbanger real quick sure sure before we branch off into a million other areas uh, mm-hmm. because you both were just talking about a lot of great stuff but the 
poster. Audio listeners can't see this, but there's a poster behind John. Uh, bases leaning up against it. That reminds me, kind of of the intro. Um, it was trippy. It was <laughs> colors blending together. Was that all originally? I'm sure it was, but was that all originally uh, created for this short? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, basically, how do you um, make that? <laughs> here's what we did, man. Um, one of the central images of Doppelbanger is a two-headed female mannequin, um, featureless mannequin with uh, uh, mouths on her hands and eyeballs on her nipples, and uh, and uh, um, it's it's a weird sort of metaphysical Twilight Zoney totem sort of affair. But uh, I did not have uh, a two-headed mannequin constructed. There are not a lot of those laying around for some reason. Um, so basically, um, after we had done the 12 hour shoot for all of the main body of the thing, then I went to, uh, special effects genius, Eli Dorsey, who actually lives up here in town, but, uh, has worked on so many of the indie horror films of the last 15 years as a visual effects artist that, uh, look up Eli Dorsey and kind of let your jaw drop by how much shit this guy works on. So, um, what happened was um, Brian Asman, who was the executive producer on this, introduced me to uh, a studio called Video is the Future uh, run by a guy named Michael Bishop. And um, we could shoot green screen there. So uh, I had I couldn't find a full mannequin. So I got these mannequin parts. We drive over to Video is the Future. We walk in the door. And the first thing I see when I walk in the door is this gorgeous mannequin on a pedestal standing there. And I'm like, can we use her? And he's like, yeah. So we trucked her in in front of the green screen, spent about an hour and a half. Uh, we, we locked the camera down. We locked the uh, mannequin down. And then we moved the lights so that... Uh, light would pass across her face like clouds moving across the sky, stuff like that. And just uh, uh, getting the shots that we needed. And then uh, Eli took that footage and he went and he got a aquarium off a, a, a crackhead in uh, 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 up here in Oregon off Craigslist for 40 bucks, took the aquarium home and made uh, a cloud tank wherein he filled it with different kinds of dyes and solutions. And that's how you get all the textured weird stuff that's happening behind it. Then we matted the, um, the mannequin onto uh, yeah, I, I have, here is my doppelbanger note thing where I write down like every single shot that we shot for everything. I have like several pages. That's your shot list. No, it's not my shot list. It's my shot index of everything we got. Then my shot list is is which ones we use. Oh, okay. My apologies. But yeah, yeah. No, no problem. I'm happy to clarify these things. So um, he shot like 40 minutes of different colors and textures and lightings and stuff uh, with that tank. I went through noting every like five seconds where something would change that I thought was cool. Uh, made those notes, uh, sent him all that stuff and uh, wrote the music, sent him the music. And then he had my script to basically cobble together the order of the things. Uh, I told him we have 30 seconds. He said, that's plenty. Um, and 
um, he did it. He's amazing. That's awesome. And, and, and yeah, and then the, the last shot is the close-up of the um, uh, the mannequin boobs, and then its eyes open, and it immediately segues straight into her, her eyes in a pull-out shot, and all of a sudden we're in the karaoke bar. So yeah, that was all in the script, and then it's just a matter of executing it. Yeah, okay, that's that's a great answer. Um, and you know what? I don't know what else to add to that. I just want to jump ahead to someone that threw me off that I didn't expect to be in there. And then I saw the credits to confirm it is Rose O'Keefe, the uh she's the I believe the founder. I know she runs Eraserhead Press. She's the CEO of Eraserhead Press, yes. And and one of my best friends, and uh certainly one of my best friends in Portland. Yeah, so her and Cody, that was really cool to see that that you got a group of friends from this industry also now moving into the movie industry together. I don't know if you guys have worked together before on that, but um, I, I just thought that was kind of neat as a fan of, of the literary stuff. Also, um, Danger Slater, who uh, I oh, okay. four four books of, uh, he plays Buzz, the, the sleazy dude who tries to hit on Belle after <laughs> her big musical number, and uh, Garrett Cook. Uh, another fine writer of Bizarro and uh, and extreme horror, who is actually one of my housemates, um, uh, is in the uh, the multi variegated uh, um, karaoke number that is sort of my tribute to um, the uh, David Byrne movie uh, True Stories and the karaoke scene with John Goodman that went to the song Wild Wild Life where you have various people lip syncing to the same performance. Um, so, so yeah, uh, we got Rose, Cody, Danger, and Garrett uh, from the Bizarro scene. And um, um, that was fun. I wanted Josh Mallerman and his genius girlfriend, Allison, to fly out and be in the karaoke scene, but they couldn't do it. And then they saw the movie and they were like, fuck. And I'm like, don't worry, you're in the feature. Um because have you heard Josh and Allison sing? They're wonderful. Yes. Yeah, I haven't. I haven't heard them sing together. I've heard Josh's band. Jo- yeah, the, the High Strung is is a great band. Yeah, and uh, and yeah, his his girlfriend Allison, just brilliant artist and a wonderful singer. And yeah, at the last Mass Stoker Con, which was in what uh, um, Grand Rapids, Michigan. Mm-hmm. I did uh, uh, a interview. I interviewed Josh, um, and then towards the end, I pulled up Allison and interviewed her for a while with Josh. And then the three of us did a song together, mm-hmm. and that was super fun—a a song of Josh's—and it was super fun. But yeah, when I wrote the uh, script for Doppelbanger, I was like, you know, I'm writing you guys into this, right? <laughs> he uh he's a young you in the sense where you two are in only in a complimentary way you guys are the most enthusiastic like just text-based conversation i can feel your energy wait me and brennan actually talked to christopher golden about this and he told us a funny story about you uh from the early 90s um but just very energetic was it about dead alive yes it was okay. <laughs> <laughs> movie's fucking great what are you gonna do i saw it at three in the morning he's like you guys but yeah, for those that don't know, Peter Jackson had some pretty kicking uh, movies before Lord of the Rings. But mm-hmm. uh-huh. you both are you guys get people amped up in a very good way. Now, before we move on to anything else, uh, is there anything that you want to tell potential viewers 
about Doppelbanger, the short, or the feature that's going to eventually be. Do you want to tell us where to see it? Uh, anything to well, expect? You can't see it anywhere right now because we're about to take it to fest- festivals. And if you put it up on the on the interweb, then festivals go, yeah, no. And then you're not in the festivals. Mm-hmm. So not throwing this shit away. Um, um, the short film is actually a scene from the movie that didn't exist in the movie until uh, I had the opportunity to shoot the short film. And instead of like trying to do a cheap uh, version of a scene from the movie, it's like, what could I shoot that could actually be in the movie? Cause if we shoot it well enough, it will be good enough to do that. And uh, came up with this thing, which is sort of an origin story uh, for one of the characters and how she bifurcates um, <clears throat> in a flashback form, but the movie is about um, is it, the elevator pitch would be um, sweet haunted guy with horrifying demonic doppelganger uh, uh, falls for a dangerous woman with the world's nicest doppelganger. There you go. I don't know. I don't know how to follow that up. Brenner, Ken, please jump in. Oh, I, I actually, before we move away from the movie, uh, I want to talk about the music real quick. Oh, um, sure. So you said you wrote something like 14, 15 songs for it. Did you write the song uh, that Kayla sings at the uh, karaoke? Yes, I did. Oh, that's a gorgeous one. And like you said, she has yeah. just such a wonderful voice. That was a beautiful song. Uh, so, you know, with the difference between, because you had a bunch of styles in the karaoke songs uh, yes. down to Cody's uh, Civil War song, um, yes. but also, you know, the, the the score music. So what was your process for, you know, deciding what to do, how to get the variation and uh, programming and recording the music for all that? Well, basically, um, when I knew... When I once I found the karaoke bar, the baby Ketten Club, um, I had wanted to shoot somewhere else, it didn't work out. Then my friend Linda Rand uh sort of took me to some bars that she thought might be good. Second, I walked in Baby Ketten, I, I knew this was the place I could see the whole story just from the landscape of the bar. I'm very motivated by locations, uh, whether I'm filming or just even if I'm writing a story, if I can see and touch the place, then I can write about it. Uh, it just it, that it, I get ideas, they fly. Um, so then it was like, okay, figured out the story. Um, and then it's like, okay, so I need pieces of music here. I knew I wanted to write a blues piece for uh, for Kayla. Um, I knew she could kill it. Um, that song, I wrote part of the chorus about 25 years ago in the middle of a nervous breakdown right after the breakup of uh, my previous career as a best-selling horror novelist. I'm lying in this uh, in uh, this little apartment in Los Angeles uh, waiting to die like a dog that got hit by a car goes under the porch, just wants to be left alone, but I kept not dying. And one night um, um, I started writing this song called Be Nice to Me. And I only wrote a uh, a part of the chorus. And um, so as I'm thinking about what she should sing and trying to figure out what the song would be, I went to sleep 
and woke up with that song in my head and with the lines, be nice to me, be nice to me. These are the words I still remember from the dream. And I'm like, shit. And I sat down and I wrote the rest of the song. Um, um, so that was freaky. But um, yeah, I, I mean, I think music comes from the deep unconscious. And uh, so like for the karaoke stuff, what I did was I had already written Don't Fight the Civil War Again, my friend, and uh, knew that I wanted Cody to sing it. So then it, what I, I did was I figured out how many beats per minute that song was. I think it's 86 beats per minute. And then I wrote six other pieces of music that were all at 86 beats per minute so that it would flow naturally. And so I wrote um, uh, several pieces that didn't make it in, some like Chili Peppers feeling stuff and uh, uh, like uh, 60s Blue-Eyed Soul. And and uh, if I had gotten to sing more of the song that I actually do in my little cameo uh, in the opening credits, uh, it's very 80s Bowie sort of thing. And yeah, I just basically, as a musician, I have been for the last couple of years, because I didn't, I put down music and wasn't doing it for many, 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 many years, but it was my first love. And um, just before Governor Kate shut down Oregon and all of the stores and everything, I was like, if we're going to be holed up, I need a studio. Um, and I concluded that I wanted, um, a MacBook uh, Plus with GarageBand already built into it because I I wouldn't have to try and figure out how to load a studio. It would already be sitting there. It seemed cool. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to go to the Best Buy. And all of a sudden on my screen, Governor Kate has shut down the state. I'm like, no. I run to my car. I blast over to the Best Buy, which is like 12 minutes away. I scream into the parking lot. I run to the front door. They said, you can't come in. I go, no. And they say, but we'll, if you know what you want, we'll bring it to you. And I say, yes. And they brought me the computer and I bought it and took it home. And it, um, um, spent one day trying to figure out how it worked. And then the next day I wrote my first three songs and then I just kept going and I've written about five albums worth of music over the last year and a half. But what I did was just, I want to try every kind of music that I like um, and uh, just experiment and play. I almost always start with the drums and then uh the keyboards and then I'll go, Oh, this is cool. And that goes with that. Then what happens and just sort of evolve them. Um, I also, I have a keyboard near my bed. So every time I get up to like in the middle of the night to pee or take a toke of marijuana or something as is my <laughs> want, um, uh, I can just reach over and put my hands on the keys randomly. And if I like what happens, then I'm like, Oh, what if I, what if I did this and I'll play around. And if I like it enough, I'll turn on the studio, record the lick, and then look at it again tomorrow. Um, so that whole opening sort of John Carpentery, um, Prague, Goblin sort of intro and outro music, that was me walking to the fucking toilet at four in the morning and putting my fingers on the keyboards and going, oh, oh, and what if I move this finger here? And the next thing I know, I'm going to ding, 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 and, um, and then I recorded it. So, yeah, the, the most interesting thing was the very end sequences where it finally gets uh, fucked up and violent, um, uh, starting with the drunken bar scene. Um, I had 
when we cut the footage together, because all the music, the songs had been recorded first so that they could sing at the karaoke bar with them with the uh, with the karaoke words that that I had somebody uh, type in and project on the walls. Um, all that shit was done, but I didn't have any soundtrack, soundtrack music for when action is happening. And so I got a cut of the film and I'm watching it on this computer, that little thing there, <laughs> and I'm playing on this one, just playing to the footage and multi-tracking until I had what I liked. And uh, so it was mostly synths for, um, uh, for the bar scene. And then when it gets to the last scene, I was like, I, I don't have orchestra and I really don't like orchestral scores for my stuff. That's not what I hear in my head. So I just picked up the guitar and uh, made all the crazy uh, stuff that sounds like strings, like, you know, like Hitchcockian nervous Bernard Herman strings, except for that it's fucking wah-wah guitar and uh and layered that shit in they just went Wah! when somebody's about to do something horrifying um and yeah I mean, am i telling you more than you want to know i you get me talking about this shit i could talk no no day. i uh my my day job is i'm an elementary music teacher i'll listen you talk about this shit all night long um right actually on. my favorite my favorite thing that i uh i i just heard you say was the whole uh, matching the tempos thing, uh, you know, moving through different genres, different feels and stuff like that, but having that constant tempo. Um, I, yeah. I did a lesson with my kids just this morning uh, on note value where mm. we move through, you know, whole notes, half notes, quarters, all the way down to like 16ths. Yeah. And, you know, in, you know, burgeoning musicians, seeing them for the first time understand just how different uh you know, subdivision can affect something that keeps a consistent tempo is, oh my God, like you just, you know, seeing the eyes light up, there's nothing like it. It's um, amazing. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, man. When, when theory starts to make sense, when the musical pieces of the puzzle start to come together, it's such of a <gasps> thing, but yeah, uh, it just, to me, it made complete sense. You know, a lot of times when I'll be watching a movie and, and the music is doing something cool, I'll be, I'll be the guy in the theater who's like moving to the music, who's like totally grooving on that. And if you lose the beat, if you are not sensitive to the beat, the rhythm of what you're creating, and uh, I think this goes for movies, for music, obviously, uh, but even for fiction, there's a rhythm. And if you lose the beat, people know it even if they don't know what it is that they, that just went off, they know something went off. And so uh, what sustains the groove is, uh, is of key significance and great utility and stuff. Yeah. So yeah, I'll agree with that, but I, I I will not, you know, I will not drag out the music conversation all night. So Patrick, go ahead. (laughs) I'm glad you liked it though, man. Thank you so much. That makes me really, really happy. Yeah, of course. Wow. So brought up Rose earlier. Uh, yes. She, she bought the Emerald Burrito of Oz. Um, I specifically bought this when you gave me the long list of homework, if you will. Yeah. And specifically bought this for two reasons. One, you mm-hmm. said it was, I'm paraphrasing. Um, I believe you said it's the most fun you've ever had with writing a story. 
something to that effect. And yeah. I have a very big soft spot for the Wizard of Oz and uh, Alice in Wonderland. Yeah. So anything take from any point, any point in the timeline as to, and before Eraserhead bought it, I know I forget the name. Another publisher bought it. Babbage um, oh, Press bought it. Man, I don't like. I don't know about you, but I don't. I don't care for that cover. This one, Eraserhead Press. This one kicks ass. I like them both. They 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 both um, have different parts of the aesthetic. Uh, the Babbage Press cover uh, is elegant and sort of con- uh, focuses on the strange beauty of it, and um, and. The Eraserhead cover is more of their, yeah, uh, hot chicks and mayhem and <laughs> and, and shit. Um, That's a good way to look at it. They're, and they're both completely accurate. Uh, it's it's so interesting how the same story can be reframed. And and that's really fun. But yeah, uh, Emerald Burrito Vaz is the most fun I ever had writing a book. It was after uh, the dissolution of... Um, of the skip inspector writing thing and uh, me wanting to die and all the great stuff that happened in the early nineties when I disappeared uh, mid nineties, when I disappeared for many years. Um, but I met this uh, guy named Mark Leventhal, who was an amazing musician um, was in the band green jello. So he wrote uh, co-wrote like uh, three little pigs and yes. <laughs> eat Satan's ham and nightmare on Sesame street. Very, very good songs. Um, and love that band. Yeah. Great band. Um, and Mark was one of my neighbors, uh, and I became friends with him and he was interested in writing. And I was like, so not interested in writing prose. Uh, I was putting myself through film school. Uh, I wound up playing in a band with Chris Poland of Megadeth. I did a bunch of interesting stuff. I just did not want, uh, honestly, writing fiction at that particular point was like being forced at gunpoint uh, to fuck the corpse of the woman you love. It was just like, it was so heinous. I couldn't, I couldn't even be like, Oh, I could do that. Or you could just kill me. Um, um, and, uh, but anyway, I met Mark and he was really interested in writing. So we did a couple short stories together and it was fun. It made it fun to write again. Um, and it was very different. He'd very different dude, just a humble genius, just sweetest, sweetest guy. Um, really smart and very self, uh, the opposite of self-aggrandizing, let's put it that way. Um, and we like the stories and it's like, so I guess we could do a novel. What do you want to write about? He had two ideas. Um, one was uh, he was obsessed with this uh, hyper-realistic, like, uh, like fucking Leonardo da Vinci uh, painting of Popeye. If Popeye was a real guy, <laughs> the except for with the giant chin and the little <laughs> beady eyes, you know, Popeye is like the worst name for that character ever. He's got like the tiniest eyes. His eyes don't even pop in the slightest. Uh, yeah. What the fuck is that about? Um, but he doesn't I've never, I've never well, thought why, of that. Why isn't he like big chin, the, the sailor? I don't know. Um, but anyway, or, or tumor arms. Or tumor arms, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's so many ways they could have gone, but Popeye, what the fuck? So um, so anyway, this photorealistic painting of, of Popeye was really compelling because it would be like, okay, so if Popeye was an actual guy and and really looked the way he looked, this is what he would look like for real. Uh, so that was one thing that obsessed him. And he also had this idea about 
um, being in a like a dive bar in Oz watching uh, Munchkins play rock and roll. And I was like, I love these ideas. And so then we just started plotting. And over the course of two years, we wrote that book. Uh, he wrote the character of Gene from Los Angeles uh, and who, who goes to visit his friend Aurora um, as a tourist in Oz. And I wrote Aurora uh, Quixote Jones, uh, who moved from Los Angeles to Oz and runs the first Mexican restaurant in Oz in the Emerald City. Um, and uh, and we just took it from there and we just had so much fun. And I just love that book that uh, I can't even think about it without smiling. Um, and yeah, it, it's, you know, it's not a book that has sold a lot of copies. I think it's, it's probably one of my least known books, but, um, when I'm dead, man, they're going to love that shit. I think that L Frank Baum would say, you know what? That's a little fucked up, but you did good kid. <laughs> we, we really respected the fuck out of Oz. I know. And those early books. And we were very scrupulous to only use Oz characters that were in the public domain and not any characters uh, from elsewhere. Uh, you know, went in and read all the old bomb and, and drew stuff from it. And so to draw on that magic place, that authentically magic place, and then extrapolate uh, and, you know, what would happen if the, if, if, corporate America and the military went in there to try to turn Oz into a, a weapons farm and, uh, and Disney and, you know, amusement park. Um, and you know, what, what the magic would have to say about that nonsense. Um, it was just the most fun and we've just cracked each other up and, and had the best time. It was great. You know, man, you're not asking for this, but if it was in an audio format, I really think that it would find a new wave of an audience because that's that's a huge format for books, man. You're absolutely right. And it has been discussed. I think what I'd really want to do is just find um, it would really come down to just finding the right man and woman to play uh, Gene and Aurora. And then they could do the voices from there. I do like uh, um, making book audiobooks into more of an experience than just somebody sitting there reading it. I don't know if you ever heard the one uh, that Laura Lee Barr and I did for her novel Haunt, which I published with Fungasm. I, I haven't. We, we made it into a real kind of audio production. We got these amazing jazz uh, musicians down in LA to, to do uh, uh, snippets of music that would weave in and out. And uh, she did the main reading. Haunt is a, fucking amazing novel. Laura Lee Barr is amazing. Um, um, I cast her, I met her when I cast her in the same music video that Cody Goodfellow made the uh, bank heist comment about. Um, and uh, she was fantastic. And then I found out that she was a playwright, that she was an actor, uh, that she was a screenwriter. Uh, she had all these different facets, just a wonderful person. Then one day she pulls me aside and says, you know, I just finished this book I spent seven years working on. And it's a choose your own adventure novel, but I pulled all the choice out of it. And would you, <laughs> would you read it and tell me if it's any good? And if it is, uh, where could I publish it? So I said, sure. And I read it while she went to Hawaii on some teacher's conference because she was a teacher at the time. And um, it wasn't good. It was incredible. 
Uh, it was written in first, second, and third person. First person in the voice of the ghost of the woman who died in the apartment. Second person uh, is you, the reader, uh, who also um, um, is this like wannabe rocker uh, and sort of corporate sellout living now in her apartment in Los Angeles. And the third guy is this guy named Simon who may have been in love with her and may have killed her. And it keeps going through these iterations. Absolutely fascinating. So we did the audio book and we did it as sort of a Lynchian mindfuck. Um, <laughs> and it's really, really cool. So that's what I would want to do with the Emerald Brudo of Oz were I to do that. And I actually am about to do an audio book of my book, Conscience, mm. uh, where I've been writing all this sort of noir, like electronic noir music for it. Uh, with all these cool jazz chords I've been playing with. And um, um, yeah, audiobooks are awesome. I, I need to I need to do that more. And thank you for reminding me. Oh, yeah. Just think about it, man, because like I listen to a lot of them. I can't keep up with Ken and Brennan. We're, you know, we talk quite often. And I, if it wasn't for audiobooks, I would be significantly uh, a lot less read. Um, simply for the fact that I got a young, I got a two-year-old, full-time job and i just can't i can't do it but um you listen on commute or where, where do you mostly listen mostly commute okay because you never know who's listening so mostly commute yeah that makes <laughs> but, <awesome>. but um <laughs> i just wanted to also comment for audiobooks it's it's bringing us back to a time before um any of us were kids when radio programs were the that was that was the first I would imagine that's the first uh, experience of outside entertainment being placed in your home. Um, I know it was popular in America. I can't speak for other places in the world, but that was the first time when families got to sit down and just gather around and listen to a, a, a program or your show um, yeah. and just get lost in it and that's what audiobooks do and you talking about how there's multiple actors and actresses and i'm knowing you i'm sure that you would add your own music and and uh sound effects and whatnot that would i i feel like especially throwing an oz element in there i would very much so bet that that's going to be very successful i gotta think really hard about my oz jams now <laughs> okay Okay, I can do that. Smoke a little, man. Uh, uh, believe me, that's being accomplished. Weed is legal in Oregon, and um, it's very good. It's it's illegal in my home state of Massachusetts. It's also legal as of this or last year. can't remember in my new state, New Jersey. So I'm right there with you, man. Um, Ken, you are the man to bring up Splatterpunk topics. I wanted to ask John's opinion on yesteryear and to uh today's splatterpunk but i feel like you are definitely more qualified for that topic so can you please lead us in that direction all right well before we do i want to just touch on one thing or otherwise i will kick myself um sure. chris chris poland you got to yes. tell me about how you got hooked up with him and what that experience was like oh man okay yeah this, this let me see if i can do the short version because this was trippy um do you remember uh, what was the big ass earthquake in Los Angeles in 93? Um, San Andreas? No, no, no. What, what was it? Uh, Northridge. 
the Northridge quake. Okay. Okay. So I'm living in that same shithole apartment that I was talking about where I went to die. Um, and actually Mark Leventhal um, was in a band. I, I woke up, I believe it was April fools. I woke up and I'm just like, God, I don't like to ask you for stuff normally because I feel like an idiot, but I'm just telling you if I don't have a band to play with sometime, like immediately soon, I'm going to fucking spontaneously combust. Thank you for listening. Uh, Mark Leventhal was in a punk band called nailed and he lived about 15 blocks away. I had $3 left in my pocket. I was broke. Um, so I decided I was going to go over to his house and, um, I bought two bagels, a tiny little thing of cream cheese and a little thing of tomato juice. And I went over to his house and knocked on his door and he wasn't there. It's like, fuck. So I went home, I ate the bagels. I drank the tomato juice. My phone rings. It's this woman named Carol, uh, uh, big black mama. Uh, I met on Hollywood Boulevard the night I almost got fag bashed by four guys with baseball bats on Hollywood Boulevard. Uh, and, um, um, Carol calls me up great singer, amazing singer, just wonderful lady, Carol MacArthur. Uh, she calls me up and she says, you don't have any food, do you? And I said, no. And she says, you don't have any money, do you? And I said, no. She said, I'm going to come over and buy you some food. So she comes over. We go to uh, uh, the local grocery store, the Bonds Market. Uh, we're in the salad dressing aisle. And all of a sudden, the Northridge, the aftershock for the Northridge quake hits. And her eyes go as big as softballs as the salad dressing starts launching like missiles across the aisle towards us. And she starts to run. But I realized that the only people who are going to get hurt in this are the people who trample each other on their way out the door. So I grab her and hug her while I'm laughing my ass off because my life is so fucked up at this point that it's like, oh, and now an earthquake. What else you got? So it stops and there's shit shattered all over the ground. And Carol's shaking. She's like, what should we do? And I said, finish shopping. So she bought me like 40 bucks worth of food. We went back to my place. And then she's like, man, I really want to get stoned right now. And I said, that sounds really good. So she calls up her friend Leah um, and asks if she can come over to buy some weed. And I say, I would like to go. And I grab a tape of music I had recorded in New York shortly before that. Just a couple of songs with my buddy, Brian Emmerich, uh, who does sound design for Darren Aronofsky. So um, we go over to Leah's apartment and uh, we're sitting there uh, and we're getting high and she's super nice, gorgeous lady, uh, bass player. Then her boyfriend comes in from walking the dog, her boyfriend, Mark, and he's this cool, wild, full of energy dude. And uh, we're all sitting around smoking a joint and having a nice time. And uh, then he says, uh, you guys wouldn't happen to know any singers, would you? Because we just had to uh, let go of our singer. And Carol points at me and says, he's one. And Mark's like, yeah, 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 yeah. And um, then we're listening to uh, the first album by Brad. And uh, he picks up some bongos and starts playing along with it. Uh, we're all high. I pick up his girlfriend's bass and start playing along with it. I have a good ear. And after we jam for a couple minutes with Brad, he goes, okay, so let's hear the tape. So I put on the tape. And he listens to it for about 40 seconds. He picks up the phone, dials the number quick and says, hey, Chris, listen to this. He holds up the phone to the speakers for about 30 seconds. And he goes, okay, I'll call you right back. Hangs up the phone. He goes, okay, so here's the deal. Um, um, 
we rehearse five times a week, uh, six hours a day. Uh, we split the songwriting four ways. Uh, when can you get together? And I'm like, right now? So he picks up the phone, calls. Hey, Chris, when can we, to, not today, tomorrow? Tomorrow's good? Okay, how's tomorrow? It's, it's fine. Long story short, this is Mark Poland, the brother of Chris Poland. Um, and the next day we go to their studio downtown, which is called Downtown Studios. And um, and I meet Chris, who's awesome. And I meet uh, Dave Randy, the bass player, who's awesome. They start playing. These motherfuckers are so good. So virtuoso good. Yeah, Chris is amazing. Amazing. And uh, his brother, great drummer. Yeah. Um, and um, Dave Randy was a great bass player, fretted and fretless. Um, and uh, we wrote three songs that day. And then um, at the end, Chris is like, okay, we can't get together tomorrow, but how about uh, two days from now we get together again? And I said, that sounds great. He gave me a, a recording of, the, of, of what we had done uh, on cassette because he recorded the entire thing. Little did I know that the next day they were auditioning this singer who was like a very popular jingle singer and so forth, was getting a lot of work, uh, and they did not hit it off at all. But while they were doing that, I wrote the words to one of the songs. So then I come in the next day, and uh, Dave wasn't there. It was just Mark who drove me um, and, and Chris. And Chris is like, we recorded a version of this. Sing it. That's your audition. He didn't know that I'd written all the words. I sang the <laughs> fuck out of it. They were like, okay, shit, we got a band. And I played with them for about a year and a half. We recorded an album that never came out and an EP that never came out. But a couple of songs came out on uh, 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 Chris Poland's sampler mm -hmm. thing. Uh, and uh, the band was called Mumbo's was Brain. Funny. And um, yeah, metal people really hated my fucking voice. And we never got a, a music, uh, uh, a record deal. But um, we loved it. We so just, how was... How was the music compared to, you know, I mean, obviously the only thing I really know Poland from is Megadeth. So how did that compare to that? Well, um, after Megadeth, uh, he did what was uh, Damn the Machine, which was uh, Chris with Mark and Dave and then uh, another guitar player singer. And that was the guy that they had just let go of. This band was really interesting because there were metal flavors in it, but it, uh, there was a lot of blues, a lot of psychedelic on the Hendrix end of the guitar scale, um, 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 jazz influences uh, uh, along the then along the like King Crimson or Talking Heads lines. Um, it was very eclectic. It was really varied, um, and um, again, generally, what would happen is uh, I would show up at practice. Um, they would already be. Uh, working on this new piece of music that Chris had come up with and they got the arrangements and then I would just start singing and we'd record it and generally I would sing phonetically um, I would just hit notes and like the vowel sounds that felt right and I would just like kind of free associate and then I would go back and figure out what I was trying to say and write the words um, and we wrote like 50 songs um, and uh, yeah he's, he's, he's a fucking genius 
Uh, I, I love Chris. I, yeah, I, I obviously, obviously with Megadeth, I love this work in there, and you know his his uh, um, just his musical stuff. I just I completely dug. So the guy's got a lot of depth and range. He can do so many different things that people don't realize. Oh my God, yes. Oh my God, yes. No, it's it's just ridiculous. And uh, the last trio that I saw with him, uh, I saw at the Baked Potato. Uh, jazz club in LA probably about six years ago, six, seven years ago. Um, um, they were amazing. Yeah. Well, I could talk about this all night, but <laughs> as just like Brennan, we, I need to move on and get back to what I was actually originally asked to do. So let's, you know, the splatter punk scene, let's start back sure. at the, the beginning of this. So obviously, you know, you came in in early to mid eighties. Um, who are your influences? What what got you? I mean, we, we found out what your real life influences were that why horror. Um, author wise, who are your influences? Because you were right at the beginning of something different than what was out there. Yes. So what bridge me the gap here? Well, when I was a kid in Argentina, um, uh, my love of um, creepy, eerie and vampirella magazines led me to. Uh, uh, at a very young age to reading Edgar Allan Poe, which led me to uh, um, Ray Bradbury, Robert Block. I, I was getting these anthologies in, in uh, Argentina of uh, uh, Alfred Hitchcock anthologies, like mm -hmm. stories they wouldn't let me do on TV, which yep. is where I discovered Bradbury and Block and, and a lot of other people. Um, and then the uh, Pan and Fontana books of great horror stories, which were these British paperbacks. Uh, so yeah, I, I got introduced to all of the, um, uh, you know, Daphne de Moyer and uh, Guy de Massepin and uh, um, um, Algernon Blackwood and yeah, just all the fucking classic people and uh, fell totally in love with Bradbury. Um, then, oh, and Lord of the Flies was really huge for me. Um, uh, again, that sort of very realistic kids in the face of violence as a kid who watched people die on the streets in Argentina. That was uh, something I could relate to very much. Um, and then when I got back to the States, um, really the underground comics were a huge influence on me. Uh, I had been into superhero stuff, but once I saw... Um, you know, comics where uh, you could fuck and have your guts ripped out. Uh, I was like, I, I think I like these guys, uh, the, the no holds barred shit. Um, and I became a huge fan of new wave uh, science fiction from the 60s and early 70s. Harlan Ellison was a huge influence. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, just all that freaky shit. Um, uh, Kurt Vonnegut and uh, Hunter Thompson and uh richard brodigan a lot of stuff that have uh that were not horror the illuminatus trilogy um which is just astounding shit robert anton wilson and robert shea uh who were editors at playboy magazine's uh letters mm -hmm. column the playboy forum and they would get all this insane deranged uh conspiracy shit from uh you know radical assholes of every stripe and lots of stoned people um, um or both and uh, they just decided to make a book about what if everything that these people are saying is true. So what I really like 
I just really like subversive, crazy shit. And um, so then I wrote a couple of books that were kind of like new age, uh, change the world kind of books, but they had really dark elements. I went to the World Symposium on Humanity uh, in 1977, where I uh, met Buckminster Fuller and got stoned with Stephen Hawking. Uh, and I was informed there that I was uh, um, too dark for the new age. And then uh, uh, amazing, brilliant woman I was uh, seeing at the time, where I'd just broken up with named Leslie Sternberg. She was the first uh, woman cartoonist ever to draw for Mad Magazine, but not yet. She was an underground cartoonist. Uh, and she said, I'm uh, um, basically, she read some of what I was writing, this really insane violent sequence that I was writing for this novel. And she said, have you ever read Stephen King? And I said, no, he's a best-selling writer, right? I thought he was, I thought he sucked. She's like, no, no, he's really good. I think you would like him. And she gave me a copy of The Stand. And I read The Stand and I was like, mother fuck. He sold 5 million copies of this thing? This is insane. This is really great. I, I, I loved The Stand. And, um, and that was really exciting. And then Twilight Zone magazine came out. And uh, in their first year, they had this writing contest and the judges were Stephen King, Peter Straw, Harlan Ellison, uh, and maybe one or two other people. And then Carol Serling, the, the widow of Rod. And I'm like, fuck, I got to write these guys a story. So I had written a story for my mom, a Christmas story called Christmas for Jackie. And I thought, if I put a ghost in this, that might be really cool. So I sent it into the contest. And Ted Klein, the editor of the contest, the editor of the magazine said, this is a really good story, but it seems like the ghost element is pretty much just thrown in there. <laughs> I'm like, this dude's smart. So when I, when Leslie told me she was moving to New York and that if I didn't go to New York with her, when she came back to York, Pennsylvania, the town where I was living, uh, she wouldn't want to see me because I'd be fucking pathetic. I was like, okay, I'll move to New York too. And one of the first things I did, I got a job as a painter uh, painting the off the studios of a photographer named Hank Londoner who shot naked women for Penthouse magazine. And on this particular day, he um, was doing a shoot, so I couldn't come over. Um, so I went to get a slice of pizza, heard this radio report about uh, um, 16 New York cabbies having been shot in their cars and robbed so far this summer. And I went, fuck. And uh, went to the bodega, bought a pack of cigarettes and a six pack of beer and wrote this short story called The Long Ride about this cab driver who gets murdered in his car and uh, in his cab and comes back as a ghost to give uh, free rides to nice people, uh, regular paid rides to regular people. And if anybody like the psycho who killed him gets in his car, he uh, uh, breaks every bone in their fucking body. And then at the end of the night, uh, drops off an envelope of money for his widow and uh, Ted Klein. Then I, I wrote the story and then I walked over to Twilight Zone magazine and I walked in and I said, I would like to meet Ted Klein. And somehow I got past the receptionist into his office and said, hi, I'm that guy that you rejected for that uh, with that story that you said with, had the stuff just slapped in. But I wrote you a new story and I handed it to him and he's looking at me like, who the fuck is this kid? I got hair down here uh, wearing an army peacoat and biker boots. Um, and um, he bought the story. 
What was the question? So ten ten clients the editor and those three are the judges. Jesus Christ. You got ball you got balls to do that. Ellen Datlow told us that someone tried to hand her a manuscript before and it was just the worst thing that you could do. you got fucking balls if you're doing that at the age you did it at. I was pretty young. Um and it was just sort of like, fuck it, they're right down the street. They, they were like 12 blocks from my apartment. And I'm like, I'm going in. See what happens. So that got, your, that got your foot in the door, right? Yeah. Yeah. That was my first professional sale. So, um, so how do we go from this to light at the end? Um, well, I'm living in New York. Uh, my best friend from high school, Craig Spector, was living in Boston going to the Berkeley College of Music. And um, he calls me up one day. I'm I'm writing on that that other novel, the one that Leslie said had the Stephen King like. She she said you should read Stephen King because this reads like Stephen King. And I'm like, I thought he sucked, and she's like, No, he's really good. Um, and um, so Craig calls me up, and he says, I got this idea for this punk vampire story, uh, and he tells me. Uh, did he have a dream with a, a punk vampire chain snatching from a woman? Anyway, he, he had that and he had a, a glimpse of, of the final scene with the bridge and going out the tunnel. And he said, yeah, so I got this idea for the story. You should write it and we can split the money. And I'm like, well, you know, I'm working on all this other shit right now, but that sounds cool. And, um, you know, we had collaborated on music and stuff uh, many years in the past. So this wasn't like a completely stupid or out of the blue thing. Uh, but he wasn't a writer. Uh, and he knew that I was. So um, a couple months go by. And then he comes to New York. And we went to my friend Leslie's apartment. She was out of town and just got a bunch of beer and weed. And, and uh, we're hanging out for hours and just realized that um, this wasn't a short story. It was a novel. And that I was interested in writing it. And uh, so for the next year, he went back to Boston and uh, I started writing the book. And every time I would uh, write the book, I would call him up and read the chapter to him. And then we would talk about what else would happen. Um, and we would jam ideas, uh, just ideas flying back and right. We had jammed in bands together. So it was very natural for us to go back and forth like that and he had all these great ideas and then i would write some more and then i would uh send it to him then about a year into it he decided to move to new york and he got a job at the same messenger service where i was and um that made it easier uh to to do the back and forth uh i finished the book and um we tried to sell it uh got so many rejections it was stupid and then Ted Klein, the editor at Twilight Zone, um, sells his first novel um, up to Bantam for $100,000. And I'm like, shit, they like Ted. Ted likes me. Maybe they'll like me. Um, long story short, and I'm sorry, none of my stories are short. Um, um, the book, one of the reasons it got turned down was it was written in present tense. And after a, a million uh, uh, rejections, 
it was finally like, okay, better turn this into a uh, past tense. Um, so basically I got a letter from Ted Klein saying, um, um, I commend to your attention the work of John Skip, a young writer of unusual talent. I have purchased several of his stories and look forward to seeing more of his work, Ted Klein. It was on Twilight Zone Stationery. I wrote a one-page query on the book, put Ted's letter on top of it, handed it to uh, Craig, who roller skated into town. He was a roller skating messenger, roller skated to 666 Fifth Avenue, where Bantam Books was located, went up to the 25th floor, went to the receptionist, handed the envelope to the receptionist, with Lou Aronica, the editor's name on it, she said. He said, uh, um, "For Lou Aronica, she says, is he expecting it?" Craig says, "I don't know. Sign here," and had her sign his messenger manifest. A little later, Lou goes uh, to meet a writer for lunch, and the receptionist says, "This came for you." And he says, "What is it?" She says, "I don't know." So he takes it, goes to the restaurant to meet this writer who never shows up. So he's sitting there at this table with nothing but the menu and this query that we wrote. He said he almost got hit by a car reading it, walking down uh, the street back to the office. He comes straight home and calls me at my phone at home where I was busily attempting to rewrite, retype on a manual, on, on an electric typewriter, uh, the entire manuscript. Uh, uh, so it would be ready in case something happened. And he says, I would like to see the book. Like, <laughs> Shit. Fuck. So I spent the rest of the weekend retyping the entire thing while Craig's like scribbling notes. Um, and uh, we handed it in and uh, he bought it. Wow. We did, a, we did a three book deal and I went from being a broke ass messenger to a New York Times bestselling author. Wow. Oh, hell, things are different now. No shit. <laughs> no shit. Yeah. But um, so that's how that shit happened. So you did Light at the End, Clean Up, Scream, Deadlines, and Bridge, and Animals, all with Bantam. Yes. Wow. That's one hell of a lineup. Um, and Book of the Dead and Still Dead. Oh, that was that was on Bantam, too. Okay. Yep. Um, so again, this is like the beginning of the, the splatter punk movement. Um, were you even aware that this was, that this was a thing or no. is it just more in hindsight that you got lumped into a category with this? How, what's your recollection of that? Well, basically what the way it happened was uh, there were several writers coming out at around the same time who were all doing uh, stuff that was uh a little more violent, a little more horny, and a little more uh, um, um, in your face, mm -hmm. and and, and just, yeah, just freaky weird shit that wasn't like a, a lot of the the nice horror that had been mostly been being done. Obviously, you know Stephen King changed the game for everything and everyone, but an awful lot of the other horror writers were more genteel guys uh, that were like uh, professors. They wore the nice jacket with the little leather patch on the elbow and, and that was how they were going about it. And we came in like, you know, uh, a bunch of freaks, but um, yeah, I mean, I became aware of Dave Scow because he was also writing for twilight zone magazine mm -hmm. and uh, including a couple stories under the name, Oliver Lowenbrook. Um, mm -hmm. 
And because uh, when he was doing the Outer Limits stuff for the Twilight Zone magazine, he didn't feel good having two pieces with the same name on it. So for the fiction, he put uh, the silly pseudonym. He wrote a story called uh, Coming Soon to a Theater Near You with a Vietnam uh, vet in a haunted movie theater full of uh, uh, killer cockroaches and a bunch of other shit happens. And it won the only uh, award, best story award that Twilight Zone ever gave. Uh, and I knew this dude was a badass. Uh, yeah. Uh, also discovered Joe Lansdale through Twilight Zone, uh, although I wasn't as impressed with him at the time. It wasn't until a little later when he wrote stories like Tight Little Stitches on a Dead Man's Back uh, and Down by the Sea by the Great Big Rock that I started to go, wait a minute, this dude's really good. And by the time he wrote uh, Night They Missed the Horror Show for Scow's Silver Scream, I was like, oh, this motherfucker. Mm-hmm. fuckers like the best and then there was clive doing what he was doing in in london and uh none of us knew each other or were aware of each other but all of a sudden uh, people were talking about us and uh and realizing that there was something going on i think of it as a spontaneous eruption in the arts where uh you know different people uh unconnected by space and time um or unconnected by space all, it's sort of like um, uh, Charles Fort, the the guy who uh, uh, used to research inexplicable phenomena. Um, he had he had a saying: "It steam engines come steam engine time." Uh, there were all these you know there were all these different technologies, but somebody brought them together and turned it into a train. Mm-hmm. And I think that's sort of what happened with Splatterpunk. And and the fact of the matter is. Um, then we're at some world fantasy convention uh, in New England. I think it was Delaware or something. Um, the same night we met one of the turtles from the turtles. Um, and Scow's at the bar and people are talking about, um, what are they going to call you guys? And the, the cyberpunk thing had just recently become in vogue. And, and Scow just goes, yeah, they'll probably call us splatterpunks. And everybody laughs. And then like half an hour, it's all over the uh, convention. And within a couple of months, we're in the Village Voice and Playboy and shit. Um, And yeah, so he invented the funny word. But we didn't know each other. We were just trying to do what we thought was cool. That's awesome. And and Scow was, he was in every anthology under the sun. That guy was so prolific back in the 80s. You couldn't couldn't pick up a horror anthology without him being in there. He just had, you know he was literally a presence in every single one and he's fucking brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. No, he's amazing. Um, yeah, that was, you know, that was a wild time. That's pretty wild time. All right. Well, I won't, I won't, uh, keep, <laughs> keep hogging you here. So I'll send this over to someone else. I, I literally could talk for days on this stuff, but someone else pick it up. Let's no, not- you know, the, the, the weird thing is um, probably a lot of the people listening to this, will be way more interested in this part than listening to me talk about uh, how I write music (laughs) and shit. But uh, to me, you know, like I was saying earlier about um, um, horror being like a flavor or just one of the colors in the communication spectrum. um, Yeah. When you, when you got a lot of colors on your palette, uh, it's a pretty wide ranging conversation, but if we hadn't talked about Splatterpunk uh, people would probably, you know, kill us. Right. So it's all good, man. 
All right, good. Um, yeah, someone else take it because I've got three million questions and I'll just I'll wait my turn again. So go ahead. I have a I'm big into film. Unlike a lot of my peers, I was growing up in my preteens throughout my adolescence um, was big into films. I thought that I was going to be like Carpenter and Wes Craven and Kevin Smith and George Romero. Kevin Smith and George Romero are my two biggest writing influences in my adolescence. I know you have a soft spot for Romero too. Um, oh, George, George is one of my, my great art heroes. Absolutely. He's very necessary for the progression of where we are today. That's for sure. Yep. But yep. I, I bring that up because I loved slashers was my like favorite, but I had a love for a lot of different types of films and within horror um, two of those are creep show and creep show two. And that brings us to 2019 when creep show comes back and you wrote what two episodes, just one, just the one uh, it throws me off. Cause it's one episode, but two stories, I think. No, I, I wrote it with my friend, Dory Miller. Okay. That's um, it. So, so it's two writers on one story. That's uh, it. Okay. So I, I really enjoyed that. And um, the neat cool. thing, about uh, that is yours and Mallerman's I thought were killer. And I also enjoyed, uh, I don't know what number this is, but the remake of uh, Gray Matter, Stephen King short story from what, the Night Crew, I think. Night Shift. No, it, it, it was the first uh, uh, Night Shift. Yeah. So it's Night Shift and Skeleton Crew. How did um, you get involved in uh, the Creep Show, uh, Creep Show's return? Well, basically, when I heard that it was happening and Nicotero was doing it, I went to Nicotero and said, um, I'd like to write one. And uh, he said, cool. And uh, I, you know, we went back and forth a little bit. He's a super busy guy. But I I, I met Nicotero through Romero. Mm. Um, and um, we, we've been friends for a long time. And um then he, 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 he writes me a letter and he says, remember that story about the zombie pie eating contest? <laughs> and I said, yeah, the fact of the matter is Dory came up with this idea uh, as a story for the first book of the dead. Uh, Dory was not a writer and she was up against Stephen King, Scow, Lansdale, uh, McCammon, Ramsey Campbell, and all these other people. Yikes. Um, so she did not make it into the book, right? But we couldn't stop talking about how great her fucking idea was, uh, and uh, so it was sort of horror legend uh, for like twenty some years, uh, and um, just shortly before this, I had been invited by uh, an editor named Eugene Johnson uh, to write for this book of Appalachian zombie stories, and I thought about Dory's story. And I was like, fuck, this could be really great. So I contacted her and said, would you mind if I write a short story based on your idea and we'll split the credit and we'll split the money? And she said, that sounds great. That would be cool. So I wrote this story uh, called Times is Tough in Musky Holler. And then Nicotero is like, remember that story about the zombie piety contest? Who wrote that? And I said, uh, me and Dory did. And he says, I want to make that. And I said, we want to write that. 
So um, we had a deal. That's fantastic. I mean, God damn, there's a lot of legends of that. So let's just, I want to jump into it. You talk about it and uh, don't push the button about Romero and his importance and what he means to you. But um, anything that you want to say about Romero right now, I would love to talk about. Oh, God. Well, I mean, um, I had my first LSD flashback in the middle of my first uh, viewing of Night of Living Dead when I was 14 years old. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Um, And at at that point, the movie sort of turned into a documentary for me and it it embedded itself directly on my central nervous system. So Romero zombies are are like my favorite uh, horror thing. Um, They they mean so much. And, uh, you know, basically his zombies were just us with with our souls flinched out and until we're just like eating machines. We're just empty... uh, uh, consuming nightmare revenant vessels and the idea that that could happen to anybody you love or anybody on the street or you uh, to me was like, that's the fucking horror. Um, and I mean, the way that book of the dead happened was that um, we found out that uh, George was interested in making uh, uh, the light at the end as a movie. And uh, um, so our agent was like, you want to talk with him? I'm like, oh, Jesus Christ, he's my fucking hero. Um, And uh, again, long story shorting this. So uh, Romero calls up. We're over at Craig's place in New York, Pennsylvania. This is before cell phones. So I'm on uh, his wall phone with a super long cord, (laughs) just pacing up and down the length of his apartment, smoking a joint and talking with him. And... um, um, at a certain point, I just got this flash and I was like, hey, George, I'm a huge fan. I, I love your movies beyond description. I know a lot of other horror writers love them almost as much as I do. What if we did a book of what else was happening when the dead started getting up and eating people? And he was like, well, you know, I don't think anybody would give a shit. I, you know, nobody cares about my stupid movies, but um, if you didn't use any characters or scenes from my films then my producer wouldn't sue you and if you actually get this done uh i will eat my hat so i get off the phone i'm like fuck gotta do this contacted stephen king contacted scow contacted joe and ramsey and all these people and just said you want to do a, a zombie story uh in the romero universe something that had never happened before there were no books uh, or stories. Uh, there was no fiction except no. for the novelizations of of Night and Dawn, um, neither of which were good. Um, and um, um, everybody was like, "Yeah, totally." Um, King King was the first one in the gate. He he sends me a postcard uh, that just says, "You made me an offer I can't refuse. I'm almost done with the novelette. You want to see it?" And I'm like, "Yeah." Um, and uh, that's how I got my first conversation with Stephen King, where we mostly talked about uh, our mutual love, interestingly enough, of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, because um, our love of Romero was already well established. And um, of course, you know, Creepshow. 
Um, and he was also very excited about these new hot dogs that were stuffed with chili. And if you put them in the microwave, they exploded. So uh, those were the oh, things. Oh, yeah, I remember those. Right? What the fuck? I've never heard of those before. Yeah, it was ridiculous. Um, <laughs> but he was very excited about it. We laughed a lot. He's a great guy. Um, and um, so, yeah, George, to be able to pay tribute to, to George like that. Uh, was really, really wonderful. And he he claims that uh, he put spaghetti sauce on a Pittsburgh Steelers cap, and that's the hat he ate. Um, and um, yeah, the years went by. Every once in a while, I would uh, get to have contact with him. Uh, Craig and I and Gan Wilson and Chris Gore from Film Threat Magazine were all zombies in the remake of <coughs> The Living Dead that Savini directed. Uh, got to hang out uh, with George some there on set. Um, and, uh, you know, the years went by, George got really fucking hosed by uh, uh, the film industry in so many ways, but he left such an indelible mark. And uh, <clears throat> then he and Jonathan Mayberry edited a book called Knights of the Living Dead, um, um, which was sort of what we did with Book of the Dead, except for the idea was that this would all be, uh, you know, stuff that happened the first night except for his first night could either be the first night from night of living dead or the first night from that diary of the dead, depending on how you wanted to look at it. And um, so I wrote a story in there, which is in don't push the button. Um, and uh, they bought it. And then I got a copy of the book and they dedicated it to me. Uh-huh. They dedicated nights of the living dead to me. And then we did a signing at Dark Delicacies in Burbank. Uh, it was Mayberry and Scow and I. Uh, George couldn't be there. Uh, he was not feeling well. But uh, at the end of the signing, he asked if uh, uh, we would send him a picture. So we took a couple of pictures and sent them to George, and he really enjoyed them. And later that night, he died. Hmm. And uh, And that just fucking tore me up but you know uh what he brought us is just so amazing and uh and he was a hell of a guy and uh i'm just proud uh, to be associated with that shit in any way that's some of the stuff i'm proudest of um so that's what i gotta say about george uh if you ever get the book that heather drain and i wrote called the bizarro encyclopedia of film volume one uh, I actually published the Facebook post uh, that I wrote on the day that he died uh, in memoriam. And that's like the last thing in the book. So if you ever want to read that, that's how you find it. And I, cr- I cried my ass and, and drank so much beer. It was stupid. Yeah. But yeah, he, yeah. he's go ahead. Ken. Yeah. I mean, book of the dead, that was an absolute game changer. I mean, there was, there was nothing else out there like this. And no, there wasn't. the lineup you got, I mean, cause you did two of them. I've got both of them. I've only read the first one, but that first one I read, I've read three times mm. and the lineup you have in that thing is you want to talk about the 27 Yankees. Holy shit. Right. There is, there isn't a bad story in it. Now the thing Watch that out. really, the thing that really cracks me up about it is how many stories in there <laughs> have cocks getting ripped off. <laughs> you notice that there's three of them. Um, yeah, and it, it was it was ridiculous because by that that was just sort of a spontaneous thing that happened. It wasn't like uh, must have dicks ripped off, but it just sort of 
you know, I, I think that was one of the taboos that uh, horror fiction didn't get to uh, do much in the days before we started messing shit up. Um, although those underground comics like Skull and Slow Death that I was reading when I got back to the States would definitely rip your dick off if they felt like it. Um, so when uh, we went to edit Book of the Dead 2, it was amazing how many people wrote uh, severed <laughs> dick stories. And it was like, nah, dude, this is not becoming our new trope. This is, that, that joke's already old. Um, and uh, yeah, so several writers were very upset because they thought they had like completely nailed our uh, our our tastes as editors as just like rip rip somebody's dick off and you're in. And like, <laughs> nah, I nah. love the cover for the first one. It's very nice. Yeah, it's really yeah. neat. And like, like I said, the ones that you got in there. I mean, you've got Scow, you got King, you got Campbell, you got. I mean, you had Layman in there. I thought that one was probably one of the best Layman stories I've ever read, and I've read a ton of his stuff. Um, there you go. Yeah, I thought that one was great. Uh, McCammon. I mean, it goes on and on. So this guy's Who's obsessed with McCammon. So yeah, I am. I am. Extra points for it. Yeah. Another great writer, great guy. Yeah. So, anyhow, go ahead. I would like to talk because we're going on close to uh, an hour and forty minutes. Right I would like to talk about "Don't Push a Button." We've mentioned it. Yes, we have mentioned it, and you have said many times that this is more than likely your last book ever, which I know you said that and you made it very clear, but part of me wonders if you'll ever have another one of uh, Oz books where time goes by and something just happens and it ignites, but only time will tell. Well, Mark and I uh, actually took a shitload of notes for uh, what could be a, uh, an Oz sequel um, and a couple of pages were written, but life just kept getting in the way. It would be one thing or another, and it just didn't happen. It could happen, but uh, um, it would have to be as good. Yeah. <laughs> Otherwise, why the fuck do it? Um, and yeah, I'm just not really that interested in writing books right now. If, if I think of another one and I want to, I can. Mm-hmm. You know, I have not forbidden myself that. It's just that... Um, a thing that happened with me a lot is I would um, I would write a screenplay or I would write a book that would make a great movie and I'd go, yeah, this has totally got to happen. And then I would write another one. And I never stopped long enough to actually push the shit that I actually have. So I've got this giant ass stack of things that would make great movies and none of them are made and they aren't going to make their fucking selves and um, and I don't trust other people to do it right, at least until I've showed them what a movie of mine is supposed to look like. Um, makes, makes sense. And, and I love doing it. It's my favorite fucking thing to do. Um, yeah, that 12 hours that we shot Doppelbanger, uh, every once in a while somebody would get a picture of me uh, and uh, I have the, just the biggest fucking smile on my face because... I am happy. You know what I like? I like being happy. Yeah. It beats the shit out of several other emotional choices I could have. Which is a great thing to bring up because you do mention in your alphabet souffle story. uh, Mm -hmm. uh, I I mean, is it, it's not really considered a story. Is it's just kind of like a list of the ABCs 
Splatter. No, it's it's twenty six short short stories. Oh yeah, you know what? You're right. Yeah. Um, so in one of them, it's like a Whitman sampler of of uh, fucked up. <laughs> you do mention that something that seems to be forgotten is that in Splatterpunk, it's not just focusing on the brutality and horror, but it's also focusing on the uh, beauty of life and um, how great it can be. And, yeah. and that that's that's a I love it. But Clash audio listeners, I'm wearing a Clash shirt. Um, why, why Lisa and Christoph? Uh, which I got this shirt, bought it from them at um, Skizzer Care. It's past nice. They're yeah. awesome. They're really, yeah, they are awesome. Very sweet people. But mm-hmm. of all the choices, did you? I imagine you put a lot of thought and a lot of decision behind who will be more than likely the last publisher you have for your last book. So why Clash? Well, honestly. Um, okay, how, how did this happen exactly? Um, I was putting together the collection um, gradually and just going, yeah, I, I'm I'm getting to the point where I have almost enough short stories to do a really good new one of all new stuff. And um, it was just sort of a confluence of things. I'm trying to remember, oh, um, in the early months of COVID, I wound up writing the uh, the COVID alphabet uh, piece and uh, published it with Lit Reactor um, as an example of possible ways to write about this because it was so early and so many of my friends were completely creatively blocked and it was like uh, I can't do I can't write a big thing about COVID because I don't know what to fucking say but I can write little things and those little things add up to sort of a uh, a kaleidoscopic or fly's eye uh, multi-perspective view of, of some of what's going on. And um, because Christoph and Lisa are both uh, pretty tight with Lit Reactor uh, and, and those folks, I told them that this thing was coming out. Uh, and um, I said, yeah, and that's going to be in my new short story collection. They said, new short story collection. And I said, would you like to see it? And they said, yes. And they read it. And they said, we would like to publish this, please. And I said, that sounds great. That's all. You know what? I, I would like to credit them publicly that if it wasn't for them, I'm not sure if this episode would happen because Christoph and uh, Lisa, after we had them on earlier this season, I forget how it came up, but long story short, they're like, hey, we could we could possibly hook you guys up. And thank you for that. Um, it's Talking to you has been a hell of a lot of fun. So having fun too. Yeah, we're Thank we're you. not we're not over yet, but one yeah. of I thought it was especially real appropriate. It's kind of like what Romero did for his time and made social commentary on um what he was living through by means of his stories and Jimmy J. Baxter's last best day on earth to mm-hmm. me. My how I took it, it was I viewed it as a far right thinker, if you will. I don't know for lack of a better word. And I just thought it was interesting. And and the intro to it, uh, you're talking about how you're bald or clean shaven or whatever, as am I. And you're a white dude. And I'm just picturing myself in your shoes 
in that scenario. But I would like it if you could kind of put in your own words how how you got uh, involved with a certain type of people that led to this story. Oh, well, I like I said in, in the introduction, I, I um, this was before I ran into Chris Poland and those guys. And um, a friend of mine, I was dying to jam and a friend of mine said, I got some buddies that like to jam out uh, in the desert. So I went out there and yeah, just realized the guys were totally fun. They were totally cool. We had a great time rocking out and getting high and everything. And then shit just started to get super racist and super uh, uh, spooky. And I was like, wow, I'm not going to argue with these people because they got a shitload of guns. And I'm out in the middle of a fucking desert. Um, um, but um, yeah, it, really, honestly, what it comes down to is I feel like a lot of zombie fiction um, is sort of like a libertarian wet dream where it's like, uh, hey, everybody who I hate is an asshole and I can just kill them. Yeah. Uh, and, and and they can be reduced to zombies who are not uh, even like real human. And, uh, you know, and I think a lot of the best zombie stuff uh, addresses the shit out of that. Certainly uh, Romero did. His stuff was full of social issues. So I was just sort of like, what if you got a guy who's just like, this is the best thing that ever fucking happened. Uh, I can kill anybody I want and it'll be awesome. And I'll be a hero. And, uh, and yeah. And then I just fucking wrote the story and I, I tried to, um, I tried to just be that dude and be excited about what he was excited about. And, um, and yeah, it, to me, it's a really horrifying, fucked up story, but I had a blast writing it. And I felt like I know enough people um, um, like him that I felt like I was playing fair. People may disagree. And if I uh, did not, then I'm sorry. But um, yeah, I just, you know, one of the things that I love about writing horror is putting myself in the shoes of people I don't agree with. And uh, putting myself in the uh, um, trying to see, trying to see things the way they do so that you can create characters that are are authentically interesting, whether uh, they are good people or bad people, or like most of us, just people who uh, can go either way, depending on what the circumstances are and uh, uh, what they value under those persecutions particular circumstances and who might be threatening it. Um, you know, uh, again, it's the fiction of worst case scenarios. And if your idea of a great day is that you get to kill the fuck out of everybody, that would be something to maybe discuss in the <laughs> of a nice horror story. So that's what the fuck happened there. The thing that I loved about that intro is that they're hateful towards one group, but, and Online, especially, um, people tend to really act hateful, get in the moment, but they don't, a lot of people, and I've been guilty of this too, don't stop and pull themselves aside and say, well, just because they're reacting this way doesn't mean I have to be hateful. But you yourself in the interest say that I don't hate them. And that I think those guys were awesome. I liked them a lot. And I think that's beautiful. The fact that like you can, at the end of the day, you can connect with probably everyone. If you just have a fucking conversation. 
it's really a lot harder to hate people if you get to know them, unless they're so awful that the more you know them, the more you are forced to hate them because they're just so <laughs> fucking awful. But a lot of people, most people are smarter than they think they are and capable of more kindness and warmth than they might uh, be afraid that they are. I tend to like people. You have to go, you have to go pretty fucking far for me to write you off. Um, and I do, you just got to understand that everybody comes from their own um, sets of circumstances. Um, and you don't know what suffering somebody else is going through. You, you don't, you know, you, in, Unless they tell you, and even if they do, you're just working off the clues. I think uh, I've been thinking a lot about the term post-traumatic stress disorder and just wondering why the fuck the word post is there, uh, since it seems like we're all uh, dealing with like current and uh, it, uh, perpetually replicating traumatic stress disorder on a fucking, uh, you know, uh, uh, secondly basis. And, you know, everybody's gone through shit. Everybody's gone through shit. I, I, I am sorry for everybody and what they've gone through. And I admire anybody who's managed to, to, um, to stay even within the broad boundaries of a decent human being. Because uh, it's, it's real easy to get lost and get fucked up. Um, and I'm, I'm rooting for people. I want shit to be better, you know. That's and, that, and that is seriously beautiful. And Joe Lansdale talking about him. Um, he, I say to say he's one of all of, I would, I'll talk for all four of us. He's, he's one of our favorite people ever because he's exactly. just, he's one of the best damn writers ever. Um, not to take anything away from anyone else, but just talking to him. And he, we had him on for the hundredth episode and he was talking about how, um, to par- paraphrase him, Twitter ain't a place to have a conversation. Uh, basically, do what we're doing, you know, because it's all reactionary. It's all uh, binary. And that shit should be left for computers. Machine language is binary, not people. Um, Brennan, yeah. this is this is a good... Apologies if I just cut you off, John. Um, no, no. Brennan, this would be a really good time for you to jump in to talk about John um, John's essays and Don't Push a Button. Mm. Yeah, I, you know, I, I loved the whole, uh, you know, kind of multi-format aspect of it where we're not just doing short stories. We get our, we get our fill of that. And, you know, you said very early on in this episode that this book said everything you wanted to say. And we had this, you know, wide range of short stories, you know, fill in the gamut, all, all sorts of uh, shapes and sizes. And I did love the, uh, the two alphabet ones uh, with kind of the, you know, made up of these basically 26 flash pieces, uh, you know, all encompassing one broader topic. Um, you made sure to get in two of your screenplays because, you know, that is kind of your passion these days. And, mm-hmm. you know, even somebody who's followed your, your storied career, uh, you want them to see what your what, what 2021 is, you know, all about for John Skip. Yeah. But but a couple things. I, I loved the essays at the end. I thought that was the perfect place to really end this. And I especially loved uh, happiness tips for the profoundly haunted. Um, I wonder if you could tell us just a little bit about, you know, the story behind that one. Well, um, 
again, Eugene Johnson, uh, the guy for whom I wrote uh, Times is Tough and Musky Holler, um, he was doing a book that was supposed to be like kind of a chicken soup for the soul for horror writers. I don't think the book ever came out, but when he brought it up to me, it's like, oh, I got some shit to say. Um, and so I sat down and wrote it. And then I don't think the book ever came out, uh, but it was like, well, I think I know where to put it. And that's at the ass end of this thing. Um, because I think it is really important. I think um, uh, our capacity for happiness is a really important thing. I think that um, cultivating that is, is a really key uh, part of having a life that doesn't completely blow. Um, I think that um, anything I can do to help people negotiate the nightmare seems like a reasonably good use of my time. Uh, and uh, yeah, it was good to sort just sort of lay it out. There, there, there's something to be, it, it wasn't so much cathartic because I'm already feeling pretty cathartized, um, but uh, it was just more like, and let me pass the savings on to you, um, you know, to, to, to be sort of methodical and spell out um, how I, uh, how I see it and, and what really helped. Again, it was listening to fucking Bjork talk on morning becomes eclectic on KCRW and just having her say, um, you know, happiness too is possible. And if people practiced it and worked on it as hard as they worked on their, uh, their job or their career or their relationship or uh, their favorite sports club, they might get pretty good at it. And I was like, yeah, you know what? At this particular point where all I want to do is die, uh, I think I better start getting good at this shit and have pretty much devoted every day of my life since then to figuring out uh, how to get better at being happy and uh, and help other people figure that shit out, if at all possible. Uh, and that seems, again, like a very good use of my time. It's just an angle I never really considered, that it was something to practice, you know, the same way that you, uh, the same way that you practice writing to get better at that. Yeah. Um, that it's, you know, I think so many of us fall into that trap of, you know, shit's hard and you know i can piss and moan but life's gonna fucking life um yeah but you know just the, just the idea the mindset and the vantage point of being able to look at that and saying this is something that maybe i don't have full control over but i'm definitely not going to have control over if i don't fucking try um i, I just love that angle about it yeah and, and the fact is i mean um you play the cards you're dealt and that's how it is. Uh, you can't change what other people do or feel or think. You can't change uh, natural phenomena. You can't wish away an earthquake or uh, even, you know, uh, here in, in Oregon, uh, too much rain or in Los Angeles, too much drought. Um, but you can, you can, you can work with your perspective. You know, you 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 can uh, you can look at where your attention is going and make decisions about where you want it to go uh, 
there are certain things you can steer on the inside. And, and that reframes uh, how you relate to everything else. And uh, yeah, I was a big fan of the, uh, the subgenius, the church of the subgenius, the only intentionally funny religion that I've ever encountered. And uh, one of the things that uh, uh, J.R. Bob Dobbs, the, uh, the salesman of subgenius, uh, he talked about slack and what we really needed uh, was slack to cut ourselves slack, to cut other people slack, to just fucking relax behind the absurdity of, of the deranged universe. And uh, um, yeah, that's what I call fun is just learning how to relax behind the insanity of the universe. Cause I ain't going to stop it. I ain't going <laughs> to stop being fucking nuts, but uh, I can, yeah. Given a choice between uh, laughing and anything that keeps me from, from becoming the kind of miserable, hard son of a bitch that makes the world worse for everybody is like a, a step in the right direction. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I know how easy it is to, to, to get hard and get bitter and, uh, and um, take it out on the world, but that shit just doesn't help. And I understand uh, what depression is because uh, I got to wrestle with that shit too, but uh, I'm a much better and more relaxed uh, depression wrestler uh, when I uh, fill my reservoir of fun and, uh, and uh, yeah, when I just frame it right. Like the, uh, the, the great painter, Abdul Mahdi Klarwein, uh, who did like the covers for uh, Miles Davis, Bitches Brew and Santana Braxis, uh, just incredible painter. Uh, in his book, God Jokes, he had a, a page where you open it up and it just says, ecstasy is my frame of reference. And I'm like, that's a really good idea. Let's shoot for that shit. You know what? That That's that's a great place to segue into wrapping up. It, it, well, did you have any, did you have anything else you wanted to ask or is that the one? Because I'm happy to talk about this book. Brennan, you go ahead, man. I can't speak for you. I did want to talk about the uh, intro real quick. Um, Was it was it totally your call to have uh, Josh do it? Was he your uh, kind of number one choice to introduce the book? Yeah. Yeah. He he had written uh, an intro for my last collection, which is called The Art of Horrible People, which um, which if you put it together with Don't Push the Button is most of my short fiction input uh, for the last like 15 years. I also really liked that book a lot, but I was so traumatized when I put it together that I couldn't write intros for the stories uh, because my dog Scoob died and she was my best friend and I was just too fucked up. I couldn't, uh, but I did, again, I included my obituary for Scoob. Scooby Hamilton was her name. She was uh, half pit, half like dachshund. So she was like, uh, a wiener dog with this massive, powerful head and body and legs like this long. And she was like a fucking cartoon. She was my best buddy. <clears throat> but uh, Josh wrote the intro for that. And it just seemed natural to ask him to do this one again. Josh and I just love each other a lot. I, I think he's um, he's just an awesome creative who, for me, is doing it for all the right reasons out of sheer joy and love. He's not sitting there going, I'm going to be the most famous or, or I've got to uh, 
uh, do the formula that everybody is saying. He just makes up whatever the fuck he wants to. He's a he's a creative free spirit and just a hell of a guy. And I love his stuff. Um, and I also uh, am not ignorant of the fact that many, many, many other people love him too. So uh, him saying nice shit about my book uh, isn't going to hurt nothing. <laughs> now I'm curious have you have you read uh, his newest one, Ghoul in the Cape? No, I'm looking forward to it. I I generally don't read books that big. Um, because, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I, I feel like a lot of novels, I, I feel like horror often works best in a short story or novella form that an awful lot of, uh, horror novels, um, just to meet the rigors of, uh, of the massive doorknob, uh, volume that novels have to be, to be published, uh, as a rule, you just have to stick an air hose up its ass and inflate it like a fucking Macy's. <laughs> Thanksgiving Day float. Um, so I tend not to read large novels a lot because they tend to get on my nerves. But um, but I have a feeling that this thing is going to be just so packed with his excitement that there, it will not be a padding-filled event. And, uh, and yeah, anybody who's saying that it's his fucking gravity's rainbow uh, just makes even a bigger light go on. Did you read his novel that he uh, serialized during COVID that he, he wrote Carpenter's on Farm. Uh, Carpenter's Farm? I, no, I haven't gotten to that one yet. I, uh, I'm so bad at reading on devices. I'm, I'm still kind of hoping for that one to get a physical release. <laughs> I don't know if it ever will, but yeah, he yeah. did it as an experiment and just, you know, it's like, uh, I'm, stuck in my room you're stuck in your room i'm just going to send you stories and he said if you have any um if you want to contribute to it if you want to write poems or send art or do music or whatever do it i didn't read a lot of fiction during the first year of covid but i read his thing and i think it was like chapter five or six or something i was like fuck it. I'm writing music for this. I wrote 45 minutes of soundtrack music for his book uh, and put it on my SoundCloud page. Uh, I thought that book was awesome. Really, really a wonderful, unique. He, he's, he's an original. The dude's an original. Yeah. And yeah. That's, that's what I love the most is when I, I read or listen to or see something and go, nobody else in the world could have done that fucking thing. Um, like that that that's that's what gets my fucking motor running the, com what, yeah. the composer that did music associated with carpenter's farm chris uh, campbell he's a hell of a guy and a hell of a musician that yeah i'd love to soundtrack that particular soundtrack reminded me of gustavo santiago i can't say his last name santiago yaya um hmm. he did the last of us soundtrack and it hmm. it, it was heavily based with like uh acoustics uh it was heavy on the strings and it's just beautiful um and that was so fascinating because um his soundtrack was was very acoustic based hmm. and mine had no acoustic instruments on it whatsoever <laughs> uh, i didn't have any acoustic instruments and i didn't have this microphone or um or an interface to plug them in so mine was entirely generated uh, through GarageBand on uh, keyboards and, and so forth, um, but but I had a blast doing it, um, and some of the music for it, it I'm, I'm extremely happy about. It. That's great, man. 
Uh, yeah. Brent, Brent, you got anything else on don't push the button? I, I'm, I'm just going to throw in, you were absolutely right. Your guesswork on uh, Ghoul in the Cape. It's, it's, it, there's no bloat to it. Um, it's a, it's a road trip that just moves and moves and moves. Uh, so no, Pat, I'll throw it back to you. The artwork is the last thing I want to say. It's just fantastic. Isn't that an amazing piece? Yes, sir. Yeah, it is. It really is. For audio listeners, watch the video version. You'll see it. <laughs> yeah, what's really cool is um, when we were talking with Matt Rivera, the, the artist, um, about what we wanted for this, I just said that I want something really uh, uh, evocative, but also uh, beautiful. And um, uh, Lisa was like, um, the pool of blood was the thing that uh, she wanted to see. And so what we managed to do was create something that has the very stark uh, skeletal demonoid futuristic uh, image, but then beneath it, and this was a thing that I really wanted was the third eye and the beauty and the, the energy lines radiating out uh, to imply some sort of cosmic balance to this stuff and say that this wasn't just going to be an ugly meat fest. Um, and, uh, but that there would be some ugly meat being festered. Yes, there was. <laughs> so, so yeah, yeah. I mean, that, 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 that was the, that was the drill there. And then uh, I thought it was very interesting that Josh's favorite thing in many ways or the thing he wanted most to talk about was the, the one long conversation, um, which is the very last essay in the thing. And just the idea that um, at various points in your life, you wind up talking with somebody and you realize that all of a sudden you're talking about the real shit. And, uh, and I really do think of it. It's just this one long conversation that I've had with all these people uh, over the course of my life. Um, where we wind up talking about the real thing and how what, what an important thing that is when we get past uh, uh, the regular day-to-day shit and get down to the soul of the matter. Um, and uh, yeah, that's what I wanted to do with the book. That's, that's what I want to do with all the stuff. That's the conversation that I'm most hoping to have when I have conversations with people. And uh, if you are wrapping this up, it's been a real pleasure talking with you fellas. You're all real guys and this has been really fun. Thanks, man. Yeah, we uh, we always do a final uh, final comment section. Uh, I did want to. I'm going to kick myself in the ass if I don't mention this. I reached out to Autumn Christian because I know how much she means to you, and I just hmm. asked her if she has any comments or questions, and uh, oh. she she just wanted to congratulate you on the Splatterpunk Lifetime Achievement Award, which I can't oh. believe we haven't even talked about that yet. But that was very nice. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just gonna ask if you had any comments on that. Uh, that's a that's a really cool thing, man. It's awesome how it's dedicated to Jesus Gonzalez. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, and I just want to say, Autumn Christian is brilliant. She's such a great writer, and I had such a great time writing with her on several of the pieces that uh, we did together. Uh, we did a book together may, that may never come out, but we had such a good time writing it, and. Uh, yeah, it, 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 it was just a book uh, that I think scared every publisher that looked at it. Um, and they were all like, yeah, no. Uh, I also been trying to get that movie made for quite a while, and everybody's like, yeah, no. Um, but no, she's amazing. We did a story for the Harlan Nelson Tribute Anthology 
Uh, and we did a story for a new book, uh, I think it's called Out of the Ruins. She and I wrote a story called How the Monsters Found God. Uh, and no, she, she's she's amazing. She's one of the best writers I've ever worked with. And uh, uh, she's my friend and I love her. She's awesome. That's awesome, man. That's, you know, that's great when you feel that way about someone you feel right with. I've written yeah. with some great people. Yeah. I'm very fortunate. That is how I feel about my fellow co-host, Brennan. Um, Yay. Wrote a book together and we do this show together. Love that guy. Oh. And Ken. Love him, too. So, oh. got to remind everyone, we have a season two finale book bundle giveaway. That's uh, Skip's book. It's wrapped nicely. It's the before, the after. Don't push the button. Actually, it doesn't have uh, that little lifetime achievement Lisa told me on this copy. Those yeah, that was the um, that was the addition when we when we first did the advanced reading copies. Uh, we didn't know I was going to win that award and shit. Um, <laughs> and then we did, and it was like Lisa's like, "You got to mention that." So we did. Yeah, it's a big deal, man. Um, yeah, no, it's really cool. I've never won a writing award for anything. You know what? This is not on purpose. Uh, we reach. I reached out to Ron to see if he'd do anything for the bundle because it's our season finale. And uh, that the reason I bring him up is because you both somehow have never won an award. But this year in 2021, you both won different awards. He got a Splatterpunk award for his incredible collection. Hey, check it out now. It is through our good friend Ken McKinley's press, Silver Shamrock. It's the Essential Six stuff. That's a great collection. He won that, um, and you won the Lifetime Achievement Award. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, those people over there know what they're doing. But uh, just we got Ron's signed copy book. We got John's book. We got some other neat stuff thrown in there. So go on our Twitter, Dead. Uh, what is it? Um, wow. I've been off social media for Two or three weeks, which, by the way, back to your old point, John, um, focusing on the inner workings of what makes you happy. I did that that to pull aside to focus on my family and the few friends that have in this industry like Ken and Brennan. Um, and it's worked wonders so far. But good. Good. It's dead headspace. I forget. Was it was a dead underscore headspace. It's an underscore. Yeah, there we go. Some bastard off social media. You forgot how to spell. Let's try it. Yeah, hey, right. The first casualty, man. Words are hard. <laughs> but let me just say, I hope you all win. <laughs> only got one <laughs> bundle, but hey, we'll start with the we'll start with our guests. Final thoughts, comments, anything you got, John? No, I'm good. Ken, anything, sir? One last thing, and for sure, I, I'll try to make it fast. It'll make it's a two-parter, but I'll try to make it fast. The Bantam days. Yes. I know this is kind of like asking you know, which one of your children is the favorite, but is there any of them from those days that if if you were going to recommend that someone read it, this is the one that I'm most you're most proud of and that you recommend? You know, it's really interesting uh, because I love every book I ever did, uh, like children. What I tend to do is I tend to ask somebody who asks me, what of yours should I read? I ask them, well, what do you like? And then when I know what they like, I'll go, well, then you might like this one or you might like that one. Um, I think 
I mean, the light at the end changed the game for everything. Uh, and so I owe that just a huge uh, debt of gratitude. But it's also, of course, like the um, the rawest and the um, hopefully, like, you know, got better as I went along. Um, the cleanup is the most personal. Uh, the scream is the most fun and the most politically charged on a, a certain level. Uh, Deadlines was a really interesting case because uh, in our book deal with Bantam, all of a sudden after the scream, they're like, uh, we were supposed to do a collection called Nightmare in New York City. It was to be a short story collection. And then they're like, no, you have to turn this into a novel. Um, and we're like, what do you mean? And they're like, just, you know, make it taste like a novel, smell like a novel. It's got to be a novel. It's like, what the fuck are we going to do? You want the bridge? Because we're going to write the bridge next. It's like, no, we want that to be next. Uh, after so you got to turn nightmare new york city into a novel somehow so we're racking our brains how to fucking do that um craig is complaining with his sister on the phone and just going um man it's a fucking deadline that's killing us what if we called it deadlines and at the same time i'm at my house going okay so they want a novel but they won't don't want our short story collection. What if we did a book about a guy who can't sell a short story collection so he kills himself and then uh, buries his stories in the back of a loft and the next person who moves in finds it. And uh, as they read the stories, his ghost starts coming out of the walls. And then the next day we talked and it's like, I told him my idea and he told me his idea. And we're like, okay, so now we're writing this book called Deadlines. It's the only book that we made up as we went along with no outline or anything. <laughs> and so as an experiment, I really love it. Although it is the, the book that killed our careers uh, and uh, ruined Bantam as a book, as a publisher that would ever really back us again. Uh, I think uh, The Bridge is really uh, maybe my favorite. Uh, um just because I really love what it did and um, and how it spun out. And I really love the fact that um, that we didn't uh, wuss out and save the nice world because that world was not going to be saved. Uh, and uh, that we um, then gave nature the opportunity to rebuild itself better uh, once our dumbasses had been hitting the door on the way out. Um, and, uh, then, uh, but by then our, our career at Bantam was essentially dead. Uh, we wrote another, uh, we wrote a, a 200 page outline for a big epic novel, uh, to be called, uh, um, survivors. And, uh, they informed us that they would maybe give us peanuts if we wrote this giant thousand word book and i had this idea for this the first movie i wanted to write when i moved to hollywood which was about a sort of a working class werewolf menage a trois um and um uh inspired by the movie something wild the jonathan demi movie with uh 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 what, what's his fucking name uh okay with ray liotta melanie griffith and uh Who's the guy, uh, the other guy in Dumb and Dumber? Like, oh, is his name? Oh, Jeff know. Daniels. Jeff Daniels, yeah, yeah. Mm. I don't know if you ever saw it. It's a great movie. That was kind of the inspiration for the love triangle with werewolves in animals. Uh, 
when Bantam informed us that they were that we were being you know dumped into the remainder bin, um, um, I gave that pitch to Craig. Uh, then called and he was like, "Oh, that's cool." Um, called up Lou and says, "We're coming to New York tomorrow, and we're pitching you another novel." We drove like banshees up to New York, sat down. I pitched animals. They bought it for a good amount of money. And, um, but that was, that was the death knell. That was the end of everything. Uh, that was the least fun I've ever had writing a novel. Yeah. Um, but I still like it. So, you know, if somebody wanted uh, a horny werewolf novel out of all the uh, books I've ever written, I would go, you might want to try animals. <laughs> that was a fucked up crazy ride man <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the book or me telling you that story the, the book <laughs> yeah both <laughs> they're both pretty fucked up crazy rides all right was, so the, the last part of the the question is is going to be to the future now for mm-hmm. people that you know you're kind of had the torch for a really long time in in the writing world who is it that you would like to pass the, how do I word this, that you would recommend that people check out that we may not know about? Who's who's on the scene that's um, should be in our, we should be aware of? Well, um, everybody I published on Fungasm Press, my imprint of Eraserhead Press, is somebody that I feel very, very, very strongly about. That would be Laura Lee Barr. That would be Autumn Christian. That would be Danger Slater. That would be Cody Goodfellow. That would be Violet Lavoie. That would be uh, uh, Deborah Gray. That would be uh, John Bowden. Uh, that would be uh, S.G. Murphy, who I believe is not going to write any more books, but um, but her book, The Worst That Could Happen. Uh, uh, yeah, The Worst That Could Happen is fucking amazing short story collection. Jennifer Robin. I think they're all incredible writers. Um, obviously, uh, Josh doesn't need any publicity, but uh, he's fucking great. I think Jeremy Robert Johnson is astonishing. Um, I think um, uh, Sarah Langan's book, uh, Good Neighbors, was one of the best books I read this year. She's an astonishing writer. Um, um, Yeah, there's a lot of, of really, really great people. Read any anthology I ever published, including the four giant Black Dog and Leventhal ones on vampires, werewolves, and shapeshifters, uh, demons, and psychos, and you will see a hit list of people who I think are are the serious shit. Um, yeah. Uh, fortunately, they keep making them, man. There's <laughs> great new writers coming out every time I turn around and... Uh, and um and that's a beautiful thing okay thank you absolutely brandon final thoughts sir you know i'm i'm only just now putting two and two together and realizing that uh john bowden's spun gunion came out through fungasm i fucking love that book. the what a great book that is isn't it wonderful um, it is and i i i no matter how many people have read it i wish more people would read it absolutely. uh it's it's this weird, dark, fun journey, um, and one of my favorite it's things. Very I read last year. It's yeah. very sad. Yeah, very sad. But but it's beautiful. He no, uh, I think. Yeah, again, my favorite writers are the ones where I read it and I go, nobody else could have written that shit. Mm. 
And, and, um, and John falls in that category. I love his writing. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. He's, he's a, a unique and, and special and wonderful voice and just an awesome dude. Again, uh, but most of my favorite writers, as it turns out, are not shitheads. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I guess where I'll leave it is, you know, I, I think I got through maybe like a third of the things that, uh, that that I wanted to to bring up. So I mean, we're gonna have to have you back at some point to oh, chat man. for two two and a half hours. Mm-hmm. Ah shucks. Um, one thing I I I don't want to let you go without saying though is uh, I just wrapped up uh, the long last call and I really really dug it. It's a it's a nice mm. riff on the uh, let's say the stranger comes to town and um, I think it did such a nice job with. Um, the very limited, the very small setting. And if, uh, unless I'm mistaken, I believe you originally wrote that as a screenplay and then wrote the novel after to flesh it out. Mm -hmm. Um, That is something that I would be very excited to see your, you know, on film, your cinematic vision of, uh, especially after talking to you for the last couple hours. Yeah. Oh, dude, uh, I want to make that movie so bad. Um, and it's very it, interesting so. because now I, now I'm living in Portland, Oregon, the uh, the strip club capital of the United States. And mm-hmm. I just have a funny feeling since this is a book that takes place entirely a story that takes place entirely in one strip club, backwood strip club one night um, that um, I think I'm going to get to make this movie here. Uh, we'll we'll see. Cross your fingers for me. I was actually talking with Andrew Cash today about it because that's a movie that he and I have been wanting to make together for for a long time. And we shot a, a trailer for it. You ever see the trailer we shot for that shit? No, no. Nope. I should send it to you guys and you can post it if you want to. Yeah, uh, please do. Um, yeah, yeah. it's it, it's nuts. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean that that movie really wants to get made. Really, really, really wants to get made. And, yeah, uh, it wants me to do it. Well, you better oblige. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah. I'm really glad you liked it, man. Thank you. Yeah, I, I really d- dug the novel a lot. Patrick, throw it to you, sir. So the longest episode I believe we've recorded so far is episode 82 with Kathy Koja. It's two hours and <laughs> 21 minutes. I bring her up. Talk about one of my heroes. I bring one of my heroes. Well, we love her, man. She's awesome. I bring her up for two reasons. Um, first off, she has a blurb in your latest book. Don't push mm-hmm. the button again if you haven't heard us talk about it enough. Um, and she inspired us to do a mini show, uh, a branch show, or whatever you want to, whatever word you want to throw in there of Deadhead Space, which is a 30 ish minute show where we do a reading from a book and we kind of just talk about the behind the scenes of that particular book. And Kathy Koja was the one that first brought it up by saying that she would like to read uh, Dr. Seuss next time she's on with us. Yeah. So she did that a couple of weeks ago and she's like, I had a book, but John Skip just read this particular one. <laughs> so I'm going to read one fish, two fish, which actually that turned out pretty good. Cause as we discussed with her, it's a pretty fucked up story when you actually think about it. Dr. Seuss is my first formative art hero. And he I know the first artist I fell in love with, the first writer I fell in love with. I know I, that because I listened to your interview on This Is Horror. 
And uh, that that's really interesting. Um, my final thoughts are that I appreciate your time. You mean a great deal to all of us. I'm, I'm sure that there's listeners that are going to take away a lot of stuff that we talked about. Because, you know, I bring this up. We always think about in the now, but as long as YouTube's up, um, this show will always be up. So you never know who and when someone will listen to this and learn shit, man. You never know. So for that, I thank you. Thank you, man. It's the gift that keeps on giving. And I'm really, uh, I'm really grateful that you all spent this time with me. It was really fun. Thank you. Yeah, man. Thanks so much, John. And listeners, this is a season two finale. Go back all the way to the first uh, episode of this season with Brian Keene. And, um, I don't know if we mentioned you skipping that particular one, but I know we've talked about you quite a bit throughout the last two years or so. So again, thank you. It means a lot. Brennan, Ken, you guys mean a lot to me. So thank you for being here for this. And listeners, as always, thank you for taking us. 